See, we put the order of everything. There's parts of it that you want to stay for, parts of it that you need to check out for. That's fine. Three hours is a long time to talk about jobs. That is why we've chosen like 10 different people to come up and talk to you. So we've got different styles. Most of the talks are only going to be about 10 or 15 minutes. You are going to be inundated with information, okay? The goal of this is not to make you feel guilty for all the things you don't know, all right? Hopefully the presenters this morning will remind you of all the things they didn't know and all the mistakes they made as they were going through. That is the goal, is simply to supplement your knowledge. And if you take one or two things away, that's great. This is not something that people talk about a lot, which is really weird. Not only do you not get to have it much in your college education, but churches don't talk about it. You can see from even our attendance that more people want to talk about finances than they do jobs. Uh, maybe that's some of the rain, who knows. But um, don't get, don't feel overwhelmed by all of the information you're getting. Please stop the presenters and speakers if you have a question or something to um, add or whatever. That's great. At the end, we're going to try to have a, a short Q&A kind of time. And, uh, and that'll be uh, you know, for you guys to send basically your questions. You just text my name and 497 to the number 22333. And that will join you in the, the little poll thing. And then when you have a question, you can uh, you know, throw it there on the poll. Uh, right? It's all anonymous, so you know you can use dirty language if you'd like to. Um, just kidding, but uh, just put questions. Okay? No, Leslie says you cannot use dirty language. All right? So she will punt you down and figure out some way to find out who did it. Um, so, without further ado, uh, I will invite my father up here to present. Uh, presenters, I most likely will cut you off at the end of your time so that we can move forward. So just know that ahead of time, all right? Yeah, well, that's going to happen. Just tell us who you are and, um, you know, why we should listen to you. Okay, you're going the wrong way, Dad. It's, uh, up here. Okay, usually I would take about an hour and a half on this topic alone, but... Since I have ten minutes, I will just I will dispense with my the introduction and the got the jokes that I've spent so much time on. And I just say this about me: I've been a recruiter for twenty years. I have recruited for every industry out there: technical, non-technical, finance, aerospace, IT, you name it. I've recruited out there for it. I'm currently recruit for Microsoft. So I recruit for software engineers, hardware engineers. So anything that God has created under this earth, I have recruited for it. <laughs> so we're going to talk about cover letters and resumes. Now I might go into a little bit about the interview, but I'm going to keep from that because Ryan is going to give that, okay? So I don't want to steal any thunder from him. On your, the most important thing that you need to do right now in this minute is pick up your pen Write down this email address, les.davis at verizon.net. With that email, you can send me your resumes. If you have questions about anything that was talked about, especially cover letters, resumes, or uh, interviews or whatever, you can email me and I'll get back with you on that. So I'm just briefly going to go over each of these topics here and say, make a couple of comments, because I don't have that much more time. Um, cover letters. Cover letters are like going to a Mexican restaurant. You go to a Mexican restaurant, 
and before you order what you really want, they give you chips and salsa. You might not really want to eat those chips and salsa, but it's good if you need it. They're there. Okay, that's what cover letters are. Cover letters, good chance the recruiter's not going to take time to look at them. But they're very important for you to write a cover letter. The reason is it's going to help you to focus. If you do get an interview, it's going to help you to focus on what kind of attitude you need to bring into the interview. So this is the importance of the cover letter. Not for the recruiter to look at. They do great. It's for you to focus on your interview. Okay. Why do I desire the position? When you go in there, don't say crazy things like, oh, I'm just looking for a part-time job, or I got another job, I need another job to pay bills right now. Um, you, people say the craziest things. I've interviewed people for 20 years, and I've seen the good, bad, and the ugly in the stupid. Um, but tell them why you desire this particular position. So that means you need to read about this particular position. You've got to understand what this position, what they're looking for. Okay? What makes you think that you are a good fit for this position? Be ready to tell them in the interview. And you're going to put this in your cover letter, why you think you're a good fit for this position. Okay? Um, and don't worry about if you don't have any experience. That doesn't matter. I mean, that matters, but it, in the interview, you need to let them know. When they bring you in for an interview, they're going to know your college grad or not, or how much experience you have by looking at your resume. So don't worry about that. If they brought you in, then that means they saw something on your resume or your cover letter that interested them, okay? So you need to write down what makes you think you're a good fit for that. Number three, know something about the company that you can uh, share with them. The most impressive thing you can do, not only in the cover letter, but the, but the company, if you go to an interview, is to let them know you know something about what they do. Okay, it makes them feel like, oh, this guy has done, a woman has done some research about this company. And you'll be surprised, 90% of the people that interview for positions, they don't do that. They kind of just lollygag, go in there, you know, I need a job, you know. And they don't even take the effort to look at the internet and study what the company is doing. Okay, that's the cover letters. Brief and dirty there. Okay, resumes. Okay, this is a good part. Resumes. These are the top, I would say, the top 11 things that I put that's most important in, in putting together a resume. Number one, proofread your resume. I cannot tell you, I will have software architects with 20 years of experience, great experience. They give me their resume, I look at their resume, I say, oh, this looks like a great resume. But somehow I miss the typo. I send it to the manager, and the manager will come back. I don't want to talk to this person. Look at, look at how he misspelled this word. One word. One typo dismissed this person with 10 years of experience. Then I'm thinking it's great. Okay? You've got to be sure you check and not have any typos, no matter how great you think you are, because I can tell you a lot of managers, they are really picky about that. Number two, have a professional email address. Once again, I look at a guy's LinkedIn profile, and they'll have a crazy cap on sideways, you know, whatever like that. The manager will look at the LinkedIn profile and say, I don't want to talk to this person because they don't look professional. Same thing with the emails. I will see a candidate that will have an email address of 
Quick Bunny or Sexy Man or, or, or whatever else on their or whatever else on their email address. And the first thing I tell them is that change your email. I'm not even going to submit you with that kind of email address. Because once again, a man, you go look at that email and say, this guy's a, the woman is a clown. This person's a clown. You know, I don't need a clown in my organization. I need somebody that's professional, experienced, and that's serious. I don't need a clown. So make sure you have a good email address. Customize your resume for the position you're applying for. You know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, you could get away with having a general resume. Catch y'all. Oh, I'm a business major. I'm just going to send it out there to everybody in every kind of position. You do it now, you're not going to hear from a recruiter. You just, you're, the chances of hearing back is slim to none. Okay, you might, but you probably won't. You really got to customize your resume to the position that you're looking for. Okay, you got to put that in your introduction, your resume. You know, I'm looking for a blah, blah, blah position. You got to custom make it. A little more work on your part, because if you're applying for 10 or 20 different jobs, you need to change those 20 different resumes, just slightly different for that position. A catch-all resume is not going to, because you're competing with somebody else that's doing exactly the things I'm telling you to do right now, and you're going to lose out. Number four, match your experience with the position. This can be classes that you've taken. I don't know how many college students they would put down, I worked at Burger King, I worked at McDonald's, I've worked at this or whatever like that. And I'm going, this person is applying for an IT entry position. I guess they didn't take any classes. I don't guess they took any classes in their school that, that they learned something in their classes that pertains to what I'm looking for in this job. Don't do that. Use the core, use the classes that you've taken. Talk about what you've learned in those classes a little bit, okay? Let them know that, oh, okay, if I'm an IT major and I'm looking for a networking job, these are the networking classes that I've taken, okay? Let them know that you're, you know, you're entry level, but that is what they're looking for. They know you're entry level if you're entry level. You don't, uh, you just need to do that. Use your classes for that. Okay, almost out of time. Number five, express your soft skills in what you have learned. Now that goes along with number six when it says express any awards or special recognitions you have received and include accomplishments, raises, not just job responsibilities. The thing that I dislike the most on a resume is somebody listing all their job responsibilities. I don't care about their job responsibilities. Because I can talk to somebody who said, my responsibility was this or that. And then when I get in the interview with them and I talk to them, well, what, you, you, talk, you said you were responsible for this, for this particular project or whatever, or, or this code or, or whatever. What did you do exactly with that? Oh, well, it wasn't me. It was somebody else. I was just part of the team. Or, that was a responsibility of the, of, the, of the group that I was in. And that was our goal that we had to do. Uh-uh. You want to, don't put down, I'm responsible for this, my responsibility for that. That makes it feel like to a recruiter, you did not directly do any of that. That was just a goal that your company gave you to do. Okay? But put down your soft skills, the, the special recognitions that you got. Huh? A, a, a soft skill is something that you have as a, as, a, as a personality, okay? For instance, a hard skill would be, I know how to program in C. A soft skill would be, I have learned how to lead other people. 
and to develop other people underneath me to accomplish their goals. I have learned how to deal with stress in a situation. I have learned how to deal with all types of different people in my situation. Okay, the ones that's hard to get along with, the ones that's easy to get along with, the ones that are very demanding. These are soft skills here, okay? They're not hardware, software, responsibilities. Um, and you, all of you guys have that. If you've been in focus, you've been involved in fundraisers, you've been involved in different core groups. Um, um, number seven here, express any leadership abilities you might have. This includes focus, leading a group, mentoring, teaching management, uh, training others. Put that in your resume to let them know what kind of person you are. They want to know what kind of person this person is, especially if it's an entry-level person. Is this person a teachable person? Can this person teach others? Has this person learned responsibilities in the past? You know, it's, it's, that's the soft skills part about it, and that's very important because you're not going to have a lot of solid experiences you're going to just rattle off on your resume. You're, not, you're just not going to have it. So you need to sell your soft skills and what you learn in all these organizations. Include nonprofit experience or volunteer work. I've had guys that have been laid off for two years, and it's, I tell them, don't put down that you haven't worked for two years and apply for this position. What have you been doing these last two years? What kind of volunteer work have you been doing that this position can use? And that really helps uh, the managers a lot to see what, once again, they want to see what kind of person you are. Companies nowadays, they're not only looking for, back in the past, if you had basic skills, they were dying for it. So they would take you. Nowadays, it's more of they're going to check your LinkedIn profile if you have one. They're going to check your name out on Twitter. They're going to check your name out on different net, um, social networks. If you've got anything out there that's going to make you look like you're a partier or that you are involved in things that they don't want to be involved in, you will not hear from them because that's what recruiters do nowadays. They more, they're more about the kind of person that you are that they're hiring. And they're going to look into all the internet to see what kind of person. Do you have a police record? Have you been arrested before? You know, they will do some solid checking on you. So look good. And anything you put out there on the internet, show those skill sets that you have. Okay, i got to rush this. Okay, number nine, take your resume into the interview and be prepared to answer specific questions. Please don't put anything in your resume that you can't back up. If you fluff it up and you stretch it, and they call you on it, you might as well get up and walk out. Save them time and save yourself some time. Because in the end, it's going it's to catch, catch you. And I've done that to a lot of people interviewing. I'll pick some of the new things that you've done this right here. Explain that. Was oh, that in there? Yeah, that's in there. That's in your resume. Can you explain that? They might as well just get up and walk out because I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I've, I've seen their lying. They're not telling the truth. They're stretching it. They're lying. I don't want that kind of person in organization. Have a professional review your resume, i.e. me, Judy, whoever else, Ryan, whoever. Let somebody that's a professional, not your friend, look at your resume and see if there's anything that you need to change or alter about it, okay? And then lastly, role play with someone that might ask you questions from your resume, Okay, so role play that that interview process. 
or, you know, they can say, well, I see you in your resume here, or uh, why do you want to, they can, they can do things such as, well, why do you desire this position, or what makes you think you're a good fit, or know something about the company, role play this stuff. Because really, the more that you interview, the more that you're going to see how to play the games. Okay, like one question, I don't put it here, oh, that's the interview thing. Okay, I mean, out of time, I'm just going to say this one thing, Okay. Don't overtalk your interview. Biggest problem with a lot of interviewers is that the candidate gets jittery and they just want to keep talking. And they say things they shouldn't say. Why in the world did you just tell me that? You're not going to get hired for sure. And I wasn't even going to ask you that question, you know? Are you crazy? You know? Or um, the other thing is, they just go off into, you just go off into a tangent. La la land. And I'm sitting here, oh my God. Why don't this guy just shut up? You know, so, so don't be afraid of silence. Silence is good. You direct the interview the way you want to interview it, and you answer whatever question they have directly, and, and at every point you try to put your, why you're good for this fit in. Every chance you get, in the silence. But don't go on. Just let silence be silence. Well, any other questions yeah, you have? A little bit about brevity, like how short it should be. Like I think I was one of those people that very I just feel like I try to make more as big as possible. Like every job. Okay. Yeah. So well, how far should you even go back? Well, over the last 20 years, that has always changed on a yearly basis. Some recruiters say, oh, it needs to be five pages or three pages or one page. With you guys being entry level, let it be one good full page. Two pages is all right. But don't fluff it to make two full pages, okay? And I wouldn't put, I wouldn't do no more than two pages, period, okay? I tell you the truth, a recruiter would take. I, I'll show you how fast your resume gets discarded or it goes on to the next step. And this is the truth. I got your resume here, okay? You got a cover letter, okay? Let me look at the resume now. I'm not going to get the cover letter. I'm going to go here. Yeah. Okay, I don't want this person to know. I'm going to have this person go next. It would take about five to nine seconds for them to decide. Okay, so on your resume, you need to make it plain, simple, and bold anything that you think is important to the job title, to the job. Bold it so it will. I'll go up here and look at that resume and say, oh, bold letter. Oh, this is in bold because this is what I, I care about right here. So you make it easier for the, re- the recruiter because they're not going to take. They're not going to take very long to look at that resume and decide if they're going to go next or not. So they're not going to look at three pages, four pages. They're going to look at the first page. And if they're really interested, they might look at the second page, maybe. You know, if the first page is so weak, they're saying, well, maybe there's something on the second page that's good. <laughs> you know, and so, so, so they might look at the second page. Anything beyond that, they're going to go, oh, please. Any other questions? I'll go now. Ooh, I went over it. Sorry. It's a little confusing, so I'm going to just kind of um, break it down to the best, the best part. Um, Leslie talked about soft skills, um, especially um, one of the things that this person asked about is how do you describe, what section do you put that under in a resume, and how do you best describe like what you did in a class? Well, there's a lot of different kind of formats that you can put down in a resume. Lord knows. Um, and so it's not a right or wrong answer on that. Um, 
college students, I usually have them, uh, a format that I like, I will see um, a titled skills. And they can put that soft skills underneath there, or the little section that says soft skills. Then they have experiences. And they can put down their experiences that they, that they have, you know, quite a long time, what, what experience they have. Um, in their introduction would be kind of like on the cover letter, but shorter than the cover letter, that I really am interested in this blah, blah position. I think I'll be a good fit. Why? And that's it. You know, something real quick on the introduction. So the formats are really different, but that's what I've seen resumes broken out like that, and recruiters like that. They don't want to have to go through that and read it and try to pick and choose well, what's this person's skill set and what's this person's experience here. So if you can break it down in subtitles like that, it's great. Uh, oh, okay. You can put you can put classes separate also. Okay, um, classes or courses I've taken, and then you can put down um, what courses you've taken, and then a little bit of what you learn out of that course. Now you don't want to put down your whole curriculum, and then that's going to be a page along or whatever. I could care less. Just the classes you think that that particular job that person going to be interested in. So it shouldn't be just one or two classes. It's what you've learned out of that one or two classes. Okay? And so, yeah, none of the, all of that is good formatting you can do. That's one way of doing it. Does that answer that? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. I have two questions. Okay. Uh, you mentioned LinkedIn. I never used it. Don't really know what it's about, but is that something that you recommend? Oh, LinkedIn. I live and die by LinkedIn. If you don't already have a professional uh, LinkedIn profile, it's easy to sign up, take a picture, Start connecting with people, and LinkedIn is a great way to tell people you're out there looking for a job. It's also a great way to see what jobs are open out there. And if I get a candidate contact me from LinkedIn, I know you have a job opening. That candidate is right there versus all the resumes I got emailed to me or whatever like that. LinkedIn is a professional networking tool that you really need to use um, and, and get familiar with that. Now that we're in college, you need to get rid of anything remotely in high school. Is that correct? Or do we keep it? Or is that what do you mean, high school? Just like job experience, or if I was volunteering in high school, or if you're if you went through four years of college, okay, put your experience that you learned in college. Okay. Hopefully, you lot you you learned a lot more in depth experiences in college and courses you've taken for a particular job versus your high school. Now, if you just was a high school graduate and you didn't have a college degree. Then I'll be telling you to do the same thing with your high school experience, but your college now. And you graduated from college, you need to focus on that. They don't care too much about high school experience. Unless, you know, you're going for a service industry and you don't have a degree, which is fine. Then you want to put down these kind of things that you learned in high school. Okay. Oh, now, any kind, once again, any awards that you, any accomplishments, any awards, any recognitions that you've gotten, if that's high school, you can put that down. Yeah, yeah, you can put that. I mean, high school. If, if you don't, if you don't have any volunteer experience in college that pertains to your personal skill set growth or maturity, then use your high school. But you better go. You better start doing it in college. Okay, you better not rely on your your high school experience. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we gotta go. Yeah, or email me. Email me on my email address, and I'll be glad to help you out.
But this is still recording? Huh? Is this recording? Uh, and it'll record even if I'm over here? You okay, good. Stand closer to me if you want. I guess I'll stand closer <laughs> to you. We'll see how people can hear us. Alright, so my name's Emily and I've been a nurse for the past six years and I'm finishing up my master's degree to become a pediatric nurse practitioner in August. And I'm Melissa, and I am. I graduated with a BS in chemistry from UTD, and I worked for Focus for a couple years, and now I'm a graduate student at UNT, and I'm a TA and a researcher. So those are kind of my two jobs. I do both of those. And we don't have this area down by any means, but we do have some experience in networking, which we'll tell you about in a little bit. But first we're going to start off with just what is networking and why is it important. So... Um, the first blank approach, what is networking? Networking is an approach to finding opportunities for jobs through people. And so you, you're going to want to use who you know and make new connections and think of every person that you meet as a potential opportunity to network. Um, there was a t- statistic from a report from ABC that said that 80% of today's jobs are landed through networking, which is huge. Um, so... How do you get started at networking? You're going to want to know specifics. When you're going out and you're talking to people, you don't want to just go up and be like, hey, have you heard of any jobs out there? And then they're like, well, what are you looking for? And you're like, I don't really know. You're going to want to know what you're looking for specifically, um, where you're looking specifically. You know, if you're talking to someone that's living in Fort Worth and you're not willing to drive to Fort Worth, then tell them, hey, I'm looking for a job in Denton or in Plano or wherever. But if you hear of any opportunities, let me know. But you want to be really specific on what you're looking for. But also, as you're learning more, so maybe you're talking to people in Denton and there's nothing in Denton, well, you might have to start uh, changing your areas or changing some of your specifics to what's out there. But just as you learn more, be willing to change what your specifics are. The next point is just to make a list of contacts. And I put that huge list of things there, just things to kind of think about. So think about your former jobs, your high school college friends, roommates, uh, people at church, you know, obviously less is a great example, but we have tons of people here that have lots of experience doing things, so um, use your church connections, and just even ones that you don't expect, like gym, where you work out, social media, your neighborhood, um, people you met through your close connections, even just like your sister's coworker, your best friend's boss, um, your college roommate's spouse, anything like that. Um, just really use who you know and or friends of friends, and so um, that's where Melissa's going to go. So the next part is to get the word out. I would almost even change that to get yourself out. So, and this is sort of a section all about how to really get out there in the world and to make some of those contacts. So number one is do your best, but also your best and friendliest. And um, I think a big thing about that is you never know who has a job. No matter what you're doing, you have no idea what what connections there could be. So a good example of that is my sister worked for a research lab on this little bitty island in Alabama, and she went to a town hall meeting because she's basically in an episode of Gilmore Girls all the time. And <laughs> she really cared about that and was really doing her best and talking to people. And she got a job she didn't even need or expect, but really, really was excited about it just from going to this town meeting. So you never have any idea who has a job for you. And in addition to that, you really, really want to build and do your best so you can build personal references. So um, one thing that I thought about for me currently, not that I have this all 
um, figured out. But I have a job as a TA, and because I was taught through focus to really do my best and work hard, even when it maybe wasn't required of me, I might be able to get a scholarship for that because they saw me doing my best. And that is going to help me build contacts for one day if I want to be a teacher here at UNT. Also, Emily has a cool story about building personal references in your interview. Yeah, I just was telling Melissa that. So one of my interview questions that I had whenever... I started out nursing was um, they asked if they called anyone randomly from where I used to work, just another random employee, what would they say about my work ethic? So, which is huge because you think about, well, they'll just call my boss probably and talk to my boss. But if you think about, well, what if they called, you know, one of my coworkers or something like that and I was someone that complained all the time or really was pretty lazy when my boss wasn't around? Because you can put your best face on in front of your boss whenever they come around because they're not going to be there. But your coworkers and other people that are there are seeing you every day on a consistent basis, and that's huge if you're doing your best. And I, I was able to say confidently that, yeah, I think that if you called anyone that I ever worked with, they're going to say that I'm a hard worker and that I don't complain. You know, obviously I do complain sometimes, but I think for the most part I try to do my best, but that's a huge thing. Yeah, so the next point is get involved. Um, and there's all different types of things you can get involved in, some that pertain to your field, some like with my sister, that town hall meeting that don't. But definitely get involved. In professional meetings, there are boards, professional boards. My sister even mentioned that there are happy hours that a lot of like professions will have, and you can go to happy hour. Even if you don't want to drink, just go to this happy hour, get a Coke, whatever, and make yourself available. And an important thing about that. If you've ever done Welcome Week with Focus, um, they say to go to every event, meet as many people as you can, get phone numbers, talk. It doesn't have to be conversations about Jesus or whatever. Just talk to people and make friends. That is what you should do when you go out and get involved. Take the skills that you learned in Focus and do Welcome Week in real life, basically. (laughs) So go to as many events as you can. Talk to as many people as you can. And it doesn't have to be about work or the job that you want. Sometimes people will give you a job if you have good people skills. They'll be more likely to talk to you or be interested in you if you can make a connection with them. something like that and there's no one there that is doing a job that you are looking for they surely someone is going to know someone that is connected with that job something we learned in fundraising is you already know everyone you need to know to get what you need you maybe don't realize it but there are connections on connections okay so the last part is do an internship or volunteer internship slash volunteer in that blank So one of the things that um, we're thinking about is if you don't have a job and you're not getting paid, you might as well do something for free, something that'll boost your resume, that'll get your foot in the door, that gives back to society. I mean, there's nothing negative about doing an internship or volunteering. And it kind of goes back to what Les says. If you don't work for two years, better have something to show for it. So um, do an internship, get a volunteer. And those things really, really can 
come back and help you. I did an internship in college, and two years later, this guy really, it was in Florida, so I wasn't going to do it, but he was a manager at an um, industry position, and he contacted me and asked me if I wanted a job, just because I did an internship in college, you know, so you know, have never, you never know what those internships or being a volunteer can bring back to you. Okay, go ahead. And then the next thing is, so after you've done these things, then you're going to want to follow up. So say you've talked to someone and you're, and they're like, oh, my sister is a nurse and she could probably get you connections. Well, if you just sit on that and you don't follow up with them, it's not that they probably don't want to help you, but it's probably that they forgot. So if you're yeah. not following up with people that you're connecting with, then you're think nothing's probably going to happen. So you're going to need to kind of stay on top of that. And the second point is just don't feel guilty about that. I think a lot of people want to help you with things and it's just life is kind of crazy and busy and they probably forgot about that conversation when they walked away from you. So if you'll just, you know, send them a text or send them an email and be like, hey, did you get a chance to talk to your sister about that job or something, then that's a really easy way to follow up on that. And then the next thing is to, after you've done all of those things, go back through and reevaluate. Am I making progress? That's what that blank is. Um, is anything happening? Are any doors opening? No? Well, then maybe you need to start looking outside of maybe if you're just connecting with your friends in your area, then you maybe need to go a little bit wider and talk to your parents or talk to your friend's parents or things like that. Just kind of go through and reevaluate and see um, where you're at. And then the next point is don't be afraid to ask for help. So. Yeah. Say you're doing all of these things and you're still just hitting a wall. You're not getting anywhere. Just ask someone for help. And I, I didn't realize that that's what you did less, but you're a great resource for that. So. <laughs> okay, so the next thing we have um, is what you can do after graduation. And actually, if we're going to be perfectly honest, a lot of these ideas were from uh, Grant Trotter. So he helped us out with giving some of this. We consolidated it for you because we thought it was so, so valuable. So number one, remember that God will provide. His timing is perfect, and sometimes being patient is really hard, but I really honestly believe that he'll bring you the job you need when you need it. So God will provide, and have faith and confidence in that. The next one is have a list of specific productive tasks to do. So that would be like networking, searching job boards, any of the things that we've talked about that you can do, have a list of those things to do. Um, next, keep a spreadsheet of employment prospects, keeping track of when you last followed up, this is a huge one. So if you're really doing what we've talked about, going out and doing basically welcome week in the real world, and you're making contacts and talking to everyone you need to, it's hard to remember who you've talked to about what. I definitely learned that in fundraising. You think that you'll be able to remember things, but if you don't write it down and have a really good organized system, it's going to be hard. And you'll look a lot more professional if you remember the last time you talked to this person, what you talked about. I mean, you're going to have so many conversations that it's just a lot better to have really, really thorough notes. So I think that's a really big deal. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important, like you said, if you're looking for a job, it needs to be a full-time job. And oh, yeah, that's... If you're out there and you're just looking, and once in a while you look at the paper, and once in a while you look at the internet, you're never going to find a job. So if you really are between jobs and you're looking, when you give it the morning, just like you said, you need to have a structure, I'm looking on the internet. That's the next point. Yeah, that is. <laughs> that's what I was about to say. So the next point is spend at least seven hours a day. <laughs> spend at least seven hours a day working on finding a job. So when you're unemployed, your full-time job is to find a job. Um, you can use time tracking devices or apps like Toggle. You can have an accountability partner just to make sure you use your time well. 
Um, additionally, you want to pay attention to your calendar. I think when you don't have a job, it's easy for time to kind of get lost, and you're like, wait, what even day is it? So pay attention to your calendar so you can't, so you're not missing out on appointments or deadlines. I missed out on like four scholarships because I got the email, forgot about it, didn't mark it down on my calendar, and then looked back a week late. So make sure that you're looking, looking, looking for at your calendar and making sure you're not missing appointments or deadlines or anything like that. Another, take advantage of the flexibility. This is really an opportunity. There's probably not going to be another time in your life where you can schedule lunches or, you know, I don't know, that you can do, do with your time whatever you will. So really enjoy that and use it as an opportunity to bless others and to use your time really well. And then um, last but not least, work outside of the house because... I think when you stay in all day and all your friends are at school or work or doing all these things, it can be really depressing. You're in your pajamas and you're just going to watch Netflix and you know it. And so just get out. Get out. Maybe go somewhere. Let's, you can get like a cheap drink or something so you're not like spending $1,000 at West Oak every single day. But you, there are places you can go. Go to a library even. Just uh, don't stay home. And as far as where to look for jobs, it might be more specific to what your field is. But just... Like we had kind of already gone over, start with who you know. Those are those blanks. And then work outwardly from there. Um, like I said, if you are talking to all your friends and you're not getting anywhere, move away from that. Just keep going bigger and bigger. But you'll get to someone eventually. And then don't be shy about asking for references from people. People, you need references can be character references as well. They don't have to just be professional. So if you have people that were your core leaders or your church leaders or different things like that, ask for references from those people because they'll go a long way. Um, job websites, uh, there's monster.com. You can look on Craigslist. I found a job on Craigslist before. Um, there's another one called Indeed, Green Pages, LinkedIn. You know, there's all these um, lots of job pages out there. But really, if you can get connections through people, that's where you're yeah. you're gonna find a better in. But um, also, just send uh, mailing out your resumes is the next link. But mailing, emailing, um, making phone calls, following up going into a place on per, uh, in person, if you walk into a place that's hiring and you hand them your resume, that's going to make a little bit more of an impact than just sending them an email. Um, go to job fairs. I guess UNT and TWU have them. I don't yeah. know how often, but um, I'm sure you can just Google a job fair and you'll find one somewhere in the area. Um, and then professional listservs. I didn't know what this was until this morning, but... Um, <laughs> I guess it's just an email database for different professions, so they have ones for nursing or for education or different things like that. Um, so Google it and you'll find something. But and my sister, who she's the one who told us about that, she is her basically her whole job is networking, so she knows a lot about this stuff. But she says that a lot of times on those listservs, they'll mail out job opportunities, like in those email groups. They'll have uh, this company is looking for a job in that field. So. Be careful when you do that. A lot of these people, they will charge you a fee for this. Mm. Okay, do not pay anybody up front to help you look for a job, and do not have a situation where they say, oh, I have a job opening, would you be interested? And then they give you that job, and they're going to take a big cut out of your first check. Back in the day, that was very sneaky practice that they would do that, and now... They're declining because most people don't use them because you don't have to pay for somebody to find you a job. So just be careful and take a little note. Is this person doing this free or are they going to expect to be to pay for it? Yeah. Good. That's good. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. 
Um, so that's pretty much all we have. Just we we're going to kind of tell our personal networking stories. But so I started out with my first job in high school was basically my sister's best friend owned a daycare and I asked her, you know, if she could help me get a job there. And so I worked at that daycare for ended up being seven years total. I worked there all through high school and then just kind of intermittently through college. But I built up a really good, strong reference base. So then whenever I switched and I wanted to do nursing, I had no experience in nursing, I was able to say, hey, call anyone from this place and they can tell you I'm a hard worker. They can tell you that I show up on time. They can tell you all these really good things. You know, you have to, it's hard because I don't, when you're, you have to sell yourself. It's hard for me to sometimes talk good about myself, but you really have to do that in this instance. But so then I went to nursing and um, when I was looking for a job um, in nursing, I'm, I'm most of you probably don't know, but I'm originally from Indiana, and so I had gone to school where I had a friend that um, we ended up, she moved down to Texas, and uh, I was just kind of looking for a job, and she said, hey, well, my aunt works at a hospital down here. Would you be willing to look at some place down here? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. And her aunt, who didn't know me but obviously trusted her niece, put in a good reference for me, and I got a job, and I moved to Texas, and then worked at that job for two years and um, had met some nurses throughout the hospital they saw that I had a good work ethic, and then a job opening came open in pediatrics, which is where I work now, and she called me, and she said, I don't even know if you're interested in pediatrics, which is what I wanted to do. She said, but we have an opening, and I really feel like you'd be a good fit, and I said, yes, please, so I didn't even have to apply. I went in, and the, the manager, I didn't even say anything. He just said, when can you start? So I started there, and then I uh, worked in pediatrics for the past four years, and one of the doctors that I met this was back in Abilene. I'm kind of all from all over the place, but <laughs> one of the doctors that I met there had moved out to this area before I did. So then when I moved out here, I had gotten in contact with him to do some clinical hours for a school that I'm in now. And um, he said, yeah, come work with me. And so I've been doing clinical hours with him now. And then he said, well, you know, when you're finished with school, I'd want to hire you. So I hardly have to have any, any real job interviews. So it's networking is huge. It's it's uh, there's only been a couple of blind interviews that I've gone to, uh, gone into, but I've had really good references. So, yeah, and my experience has been really really similar. I was thinking at first I was like I don't have very much experience with networking, and then I realized every job I've ever had was because I knew someone else. So when I worked, I worked in three different restaurants throughout high school and college. Every single one of them was a reference from someone else. Um, and then I guess we're running a long time, so I'll finish up quick here. But one of the biggest ones is at UNT. I wasn't going to come here, and I felt like they weren't really pursuing me for graduate school, and I could get a better position somewhere else. And my mom used to work with someone whose husband was now really high up at UNT, and um, he ran into us randomly at a graduation, remembered my mom, and through that convinced me to just come and visit the school one time. And because I knew him, the department knew that, they started pursuing me in a way that they, they hadn't before at all. They were not interested in me. And then just because I knew him, they did. So all of the jobs I've ever had, all the internships I've ever had, have all come through networking. So, okay. Yay, networking.
early on was tried to call a couple like actual people who wanted were doing the job that I wanted to do and just see if I could get them on the line and ask them like, all right, I'm trying to find a job somewhere. What quick tips would you have for me? And I talked to two or three people. And so sometimes just calling people like randomly, not expecting that they're going to give you a job, but that they could actually tell you a little bit more about the field you're trying to go into, particularly for some of you who are going into pretty specific fields, could be really helpful too. Just cold calling you. Um, you know, again, not an effective way to get a job, but a great way to kind of get an idea of what you need to know about getting that kind of yeah, actually something to add on to that, this might be kind of specific to grad school or maybe all entry-level positions, but when we're trying to decide what research group we want to work for, one of the number one questions that graduate students ask is, who does that professor know? Because who he knows, depends, like that directly impacts what job you're going to get. And so you want a professor that collaborates with as many people as physically possible that will be able to get you a job. Okay. Well, also, you, how can college graduate contact me through LinkedIn? Say, I want to get in this field. I just graduated. Please give me directions on how I would go about doing that. And if they think of the time, once again, LinkedIn, fellow worker out there, I'll go respond to them and give them some guidance on that. So that's a good thing, once again, for LinkedIn to, to ask for people to do this a lot of time. They will put them in to respond to All right, my name is Ryan, and I'm going to talk to you guys about interviewing and negotiating. Um, I've been out of college for about six years now, and if yes, yes, in your packet, we I guess we're going around benefits and pay. Next, huh? Yeah, that's going to be after me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so interviewing and negotiating. Um, I want to preface all this by saying that I have only ever worked technical jobs in college and after college, so all of my experience is pretty biased towards that. I don't know what kind of jobs you guys will be interviewing for or going for, but you really need to do your due diligence on the field you're going into and the type of job that you're interviewing for and the company that you're interviewing for, because a lot of this stuff is pretty variable and can change between fields. So just want to put that out there um, to begin. So interviewing, you've sent out your resume, you've done your networking, someone says, hey, we want to interview you, congratulations. Don't freak out, okay? So you've sent some preparation ahead that you need to do. Um, I think of interviews, it's like going to an exam. Um, if you go to a final at the end of your class, this is something that you're prepared for, right? Hopefully when you go into a final, you're not like surprised by any questions that get asked. If you are, you maybe don't deserve to pass the class. I feel like in the same way, if you go into an interview and you're like pretty surprised by questions that get asked about you, that maybe you don't deserve the job and you're not ready for that. So I want to walk through some different areas of preparation and then we'll talk some about what to actually do during the interview and then negotiating, which is what happens if you interview well and they like you. So preparation. First of all, two good websites to look at. The first one, glassdoor.com. 
this website is like awesome if you're interviewing or really looking at jobs at bigger companies because people will review the company, they'll talk about their interview experience, they'll, they'll post like what job they work and their salaries. Um, they may even say like what questions they were asked in interviews. So there can be a lot of very uh, valuable experience or information about different companies on that website. And then Jobpedia is just a really good like general resource, not really company specific, just more like general job, career, interview advice, and a place where you can ask questions and people will submit answers. So first step of preparation is to know yourself. Um, you can go on the internet and find all sorts of lists of common interview questions, questions like, why are you interviewing for this job? Tell me about your strengths. Tell me about your weaknesses. Tell me what you enjoy outside of work. There are all sorts of lists of questions like this. And the idea is that these questions should not surprise you. If I ask you what your strengths are and how they apply to this job, that should not be like a shocking question. You should be able to answer off the top of your head. I've definitely been in interviews before where I was asked questions like this, and my first response is like, hmm, good question. That, that is not how you should respond. You should, you should know yourself, know who you are, and be able to talk about yourself. Be comfortable talking about your background and kind of who you are and those sorts of things. So... I would just recommend finding lists of these common interview questions that are not job-specific and going through and making sure that you're familiar with these questions and you just kind of know what your answer might be. I think of these things as known things, especially today with the internet, people post all this stuff after they interview, so there's no reason why you should be surprised about really any question about yourself. Second thing to know is your resume. So Les went over this a little bit, and this is something that I did before my last big interview, is I went through each thing on my resume and I wrote out an explanation. I wrote out a justification about why that was on my resume. That way I wasn't surprised by any question on my resume. I was ready to talk about stuff, ready to, ready to give examples about different skills I had listed or talk about different jobs. Because I guarantee you, people are going to ask you about different things that you've listed, whether that's a job or a skill. That stuff will come up in your, in your interview, so you need to be ready for that. So don't be surprised. Um, don't say like, oh, I didn't know that was on my resume, or oh, that was like outdated information. Um, yeah, that's kind of game over when you start having answers like that in your interview. So those first two things, knowing yourself and knowing your resume, those should all be really easy things that you can prepare for to, to make that interview process um, a little more comfortable. So the next thing is know the company. You should know what the company is, what do they do, who are their customers. Basically, if you can Google it, you should know it ahead of time. And Part of this goes into like preparing questions for interviews. You should basically never ask a question in an interview that you could have Googled to get the answer for. So that makes you look super unprepared. 
So do your research beforehand. And then as you learn about the company, you know, figure out questions that you want to ask in the interview. What's something that you couldn't find out that is important to you that you're really interested in about the company? What's something about the company that's maybe like concerning about you that you would want to like have resolved in your head before you could take a job there? These are the sorts of things that you want to ask about when you get to the interview. So part of your research process. Um, the next thing is to know the position. So within a company, obviously, there's a lot of different types of jobs. And with each of these jobs, you'll be doing a different thing. You know, expectations will be different. So figure out what that looks like, you know, in general across your industry, but also if you can at the specific company that you're interviewing for. Make sure you understand as well as you can the position and then try to come up with any questions that you would like to see answered about what that position looks like in the company, kind of what that role is like. So that kind of leads into the next section, which is preparing questions. You really have to go into an interview prepared to ask them questions. Um, the worst thing is no questions. That is certainly worse than any question you could ask. There are bad questions, but the worst thing is not to ask any. So the idea here is that in your mind, you have like an ideal job. Um, you have things that you care about at your job, maybe things that you want to see there. And some of this stuff is things you can't find out through research. Maybe you can't find out through Google like, what does the relationship look like between me and my manager? Or, you know, what do people enjoy about working at this company? So these are the kind of things that you may want to ask. But you really have to figure out for yourself what is important to you about work, what is important to you about your work environment and your coworkers, and kind of formulate questions to figure out the things that are important to you. So good questions are like, about company culture, team structure, what does the team that I'm interviewing for do within the bigger context of the company? How exactly will I be contributing to the company through this team? Um, Work-life balance can be something good to ask about. I said gently on there because you don't want to ask in such a way that your interviewers will think that work-life balance is the only thing that matters to you. Because then you're going to look like you're lazy. And unless you're in like a really good position, like you already have a job, and maybe you're interviewing for another job, but you're already set, you know, then you can be a little more picky about that stuff. But when it comes to some things like work-life balance, you just, you just want to be careful how you ask those questions. You don't want to make them think that that's your top priority. So bad questions to ask about. Things you could find through Google. Don't look like you didn't do your research. Don't ask about salary, time off, or benefits in the interview. You hold off on all that stuff until you get a job offer. Then you can start talking about those sorts of things. But don't bring that up at all in the interview. Don't ask them how you did or if you got the job in the interview. Okay? Just, I know it... It seems obvious, but just don't do it. So, and don't, don't come with no questions at all, because that would be worse. 
Okay, so you've done all your research, you've done all your preparation, and the day of the interview is now here. So I have a few different things that I didn't put on there. Um, don't change your morning routine. Do what you would normally do. Um, if you normally eat breakfast, don't skip breakfast. If you don't normally eat breakfast, don't eat breakfast. If, you, if you're not a coffee drinker, today is not a time to experiment with coffee. And, you know, if you are, today is not a good day to skip coffee. So just do what you would normally do. You want to be in, like, your, your normal, ideal, comfortable state. For me, interviewing and negotiating... They are pretty uncomfortable things filled, filled with weird emotions. So I, won't, I want to try to be as normal as I can be so that I can deal with these weird things that I'm feeling as I'm trying to talk to people about myself. So dress to impress, but don't be too impressive, right? If you're interviewing at a company where people wear jeans and T-shirts, don't show up in a suit and tie, Okay. Try to try to be be within like acceptable range of the job that you are interviewing for. Lady met me in her workout clothes at Starbucks. Yeah, so and with this you, you can talk to people who work at the company or who work in similar jobs and try to get a feel of what is acceptable. Yeah, and I've asked that question of the person interviewing me before I went in. What's the dress code of this company? Just so that I know. So arrive early. Don't arrive too early. If you uh, come to the office 30 minutes early saying you're here, I'm going to think like, well, they probably wrote down the time wrong or they misheard me or something. So like 10 minutes early, that's like pretty good. So be yourself. Be respectful. Remember that interviewers are humans too. Um, I think there's like this idea that with interviewing and negotiating, um, if I get a job, it's like a win-lose situation and that I won and I beat the company. Like, yeah, I beat the system, I got a job. But having been on the other side of things, I think a better like attitude or perspective to have is that no it's a win-win situation or that's what we want to go for so I'm looking for a job that I enjoy that's a good fit for me that hopefully pays me decent but if I'm the interviewer I want someone who has the skills to do the job that I'm looking to fill and chances are if I'm interviewing you I will be working with you so I'm trying to figure out like all right can I deal with you for eight hours a day are you, the, are you the kind of person that I want to be around? So we want to make sure that these, these things align and that the company wins, they get a good person, but you also win and that you get a good job that will take care of you and that you will enjoy. So when you're in the interview, um, I wrote this twice, basically be honest and be consistent. So what I mean by that is that when people ask you questions, if you don't know the answer, just say you don't know. That's fine. Um, I'd rather someone be honest about what they do or don't know 
then try to lie and get away with it. It's okay. No one knows everything. Um, learning is part of the job. When you answer, try to be consistent with your resume. So don't volunteer information that you purposely excluded from your resume. If you have like jobs that you got fired from and you didn't put on your resume, like don't tell me about that. I don't, I don't need to know. It's okay. We all make mistakes. And yeah, it's okay to leave that stuff out. I will not put my GPA on my resume because I'm not proud of it and I would never volunteer that information in an interview. And that's okay. You know, college was college and I've moved on and there are good things I can talk about. So don't, don't volunteer that type of information. Um, so don't forget to ask your questions. Usually at the end of an interview, the interviewer will say like, okay, do you have any questions for us? And this is the time for you to ask them the stuff that hopefully you've decided upon beforehand. Um, make sure you have that list ready and available. Don't try to think that stuff up the morning of or the hour of or during the interview. That stuff you can come up with beforehand. Ryan, can you ask too many questions at the end of an interview? Probably. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so maybe like four or five good questions. Two or three. Whatever. Yeah, Oscar. I would ask that before the interview. Okay, but what if you're like, so you're, so I've been on interviews where there's like HR interviews and the engineering interviews and then another interview and then there's another interview and so, you know, it's like kind of like hard to, or at least for me it's been hard to you know, like decide for whether it's going to be technical or not. And so it turns out that a lot of them were not technical, but, and so it, then I'm so like confident about it that like I don't really, when I get the technical questions, I'm like, oh, man, I should have studied for that. So when is a good time to know that or ask about it? Hmm. So I think if they like start you out, let's say with a screening interview, something like that, where it's just like all personal questions, at the end of that, you would want to ask, like, what are the next steps? What would the next interview look like? And they will tell you, like, yeah, if we like you, if you're moving on, the next step would be you would talk to this person. It would be a technical thing. Hopefully they would give that information to you. You know, unfortunately, every manager is different. Some, you might have an HR interview, and they want you to talk to the manager. The HR person, a lot of times, don't have a clue if the manager is going to be technical or if the manager is going to be personal. So a lot of times they don't know. And so, so sometimes you hear technically you, go, you, you interview the manager and they don't want to ask you anything technical. So a lot of times you just don't know. And, and the HR representative won't know either because it's so dependent on the particular manager. So the best, the best answer is bone up technically. You never lose out voting up technically on any interview. You should have the personal stuff down. Technical, I mean, some of these guys are talking about like engineering and these things, but technical, I mean, even in, if you're in a field like social work or sociology, like my interview was not even a real interview. 
the same, I mean, it was on the phone. We talked about it. I had a job two days later. The same exact guy that interviewed me interviewed my brother, and it was like an hour and a half long technical interview. We challenged his thinking on a variety of issues. <laughs> well, sometimes it just has to do with the mood yeah. <laughs> and the, yeah. the way that the day is going. That's um, right. it's totally it's a, it is just better to be prepared for both. Yeah. Um, by technically, just mean things that are really specific to your field that you, you would need to know. Yeah, um, yeah skills for your job. Business to uh, you know, in engineering. Did that guy know you better? He did. So that might have something. Yeah, sure. My name. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, we, we've got to move on. But this is important for the interview. Most candidates get disqualified because of these right, two right, things. Right. One, you ask you, what weaknesses do you have? You need to do some research on how to answer that question. Because that one question will delete you totally on how you answer that question. The other one is about why did you leave this particular position? And if you say anything negative about any company you ever worked for, and you don't, you don't want to tell me you got fired, but if you put it in a negative way, well, I just wasn't, they just wasn't, you won't get the job. You won't get the job. They don't want to hire negative people. So even if it was a bad experience, a negative environment, and it, wasn't, it was beyond your control, do not tell them that. You love the company. You love working there. You just have a better opportunity to go somewhere else. I guarantee you, if you don't do it, those two things eliminate most of the candidates for the interview. The weakness question, I mean, you don't want to say, you know, like, I have a drinking problem. <laughs> you don't want to be too honest, but you also don't want to be one of those people that turns your your weakness immediately into a strength. You kind of want there to be some honesty, you know, some middle ground between those. But like you said, you can look that, that up. All right, Ryan, assuming that most of these recent graduates won't have much leverage to negotiating their pay, you have two minutes to explain this thing. Cool. Okay, so why should you negotiate... For me personally, it's a chance to practice being assertive and being uncomfortable in a situation. Maybe you're like Brad and you enjoy bargaining. Negotiation is probably easy for him. But I think for the rest of us, it's, to, it's a way to practice putting ourselves out there and to figure out what you're worth and to, to kind of demonstrate that. So before you even get to negotiating, you should have a list of questions ready just about benefits, vacation, these sorts of things that come with every job. And you'll ask this stuff during this like offer negotiation phase, just trying to figure out what does the whole package look like of the job that you're getting. So figure out all that stuff beforehand. And then when the day hopefully comes that they say, hey, we want to talk to you about a job offer. So my best advice here is don't be like me. Don't be compulsive in trying to get out of uncomfortable situations, and don't just say yes. Say thank you, and I'll get back. I'll get back to you later. I've definitely had to call people back because I just said yes, wanting to like get out of a situation, and had to be like, yeah, can we like talk about that because didn't definitely didn't mean to just say yes immediately. So say thank you. Um, ask your questions about. What is the whole package of this job? Say, you know, thank you. I'll take some time to think about this. When would you need an answer by? Um, once you get off the phone or however they deliver that to you, now is the time to get advice from your friends, family, whoever. Figure out, is this a good deal? Um, maybe you have multiple job offers and um, 
you can kind of weigh them against each other. Maybe you don't, and this is your one deal. So figure out, is this a good deal? Do you think you can get a little more money? Don't be greedy, okay? Have realistic expectations. Do your research. Um, when you go back to talk to them, just figure out, like, what's your minimum and what do you think you're going to go for? And just ask for it and see what happens. And whatever happens will happen. I don't really, don't have a lot of good advice on how to shape that conversation because this is something that I am horrible at. But just say it and, uh, yeah, wait for them to respond. One thing that you should not do is don't volunteer what you're expecting, if you can. Um, Grant was in a situation where he tried to do this, and they just wouldn't have it. They kind of forced him to, to play the first hand. But you don't want to be in that situation. You want to know kind of what they're thinking and what their range is for the job. So as much as you can, let them be the first to throw out a number in terms of pay and kind of go from there. And then in the end, um, whether you decide to take the job or not, be very thankful for their time. And that goes for the interview too. You know, people that interview you, they have other jobs. They're not professional interviewers. I'm taking time out of my day, not doing my job so that I can interview you to help you get a job. So be thankful to those people for, for what they do. Um, yeah, that's all I got. Um, okay, well, I have the last technical piece of this job seminar, meaning um, kind of like uh, hard information, lots of new information, things to think about. The rest of the folks are going to do more um, kind of thinking about your work and how to have an impact at your job and, you know, thinking about work and community. And so um, are you guys fine? Are you ready to launch into this? Uh, anyone need a break or anything? Just know that I'm the last one that's sharing really technical stuff. And from here on after me, well, people will be sharing more kind of stuff that's relatable and a little bit easier to, to think about um, and, uh, you know, it doesn't require so much learning and stuff. Uh, and, and, and one of the questions was work-life balance and... Chelsea and Melissa will talk about that a little bit later uh, as well. Um, gosh, I, I wish really we would have worked more funny, bad stories into this uh, because I have so many bad work stories. One of my favorite ones is um, I wrote a cover letter to NCTC that was meant for UNT. And it said something to the degree of I would really like to work in a more academic, uh, more rigorous academic climate than a community college. And I got a response back from the hiring manager who just said, well, it's good to know ahead of time that, that you, uh, you know, that's your perspective on it. It's not really going to be worth interviewing you. And I was like, gosh, what was I thinking? And... I just apologize. I mean, what else can you say? Total foot in my mouth. And which, at the time, I didn't even have that attitude, really. I don't know why I put that. I just I was trying to come up with something to put in a cover letter that I couldn't really... It wasn't even my real feelings, I don't think. And so, of course, I didn't get the job. I emailed her two months later, again, just saying, hey, I really want to just tell you, you know, God's been kind of working on me with some of these things. I mean, I was like, what else do I have to lose? I'll just tell him, you know, all kinds of stuff. She hired me the next day. 
Uh, now that is a total weird situation. But she was like, anybody who has the willingness to like come back and you know apologize for putting their foot in their mouth um, is worth hiring. And she's become one of my favorite colleagues at the school that I teach at. So just give yourself a lot of forgiveness. You're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. But sometimes God has a really great way of humbling you through those mistakes. And that's totally okay and fine. And so just don't let this overwhelm you and make you feel like, oh my gosh, I have to do all these things. You're going to make mistakes. I've made a lot of them. They're really funny and great to remember. Okay, so understanding benefits and pay. I'm going to wrap up a whole lot of things in this one little section here. Um, and we'll see. I'm going to try to get us back on time. So, okay, the, the most simple thing beginning here is, you know, check that you're getting paid accurately. <laughs> Sometimes you're not getting paid accurately. Uh, you need to know um, whether that's happening or not. We realized that we, uh, Chelsea, in her job, uh, wasn't exactly getting the pay that she uh, was supposed to get just within the last uh, three months, mostly because of a weird thing that she added with, with becoming actually a social worker. And so we just kind of lost out on that money that should have been paid to us. Um, and that's really not her fault. It was really more the company's fault for not ad- addressing it. But just be checking. I mean, you know how much you make? So just check. That you are making the money that you're supposed to be making, okay? It's really kind of as easy as that. And some of that's going to be taken out with taxes, and that's fine. Um, but you'll just need to know that kind of ahead of time once you have that job. Um, a lot of times it's just you get a pay stub every month. And it monthly, it'll break down exactly where all of your money is going. Um, and that's how you know. You know what you got, and then you're, you know, you're, you, it'll break it down for you. And you just need to make sure that it's accurate. Um, particularly when, and, and point C here, which I'll skip one, is decide how many exemptions you're going to take. Most of you will only have an option between one or two exemptions on your taxes. Basically, all that means is whether you're going to get more money in your paycheck or more money in your tax refund at the end of the year. Uh, so if you take two exemptions, you're going to get more money in your paycheck, less money in your big tax refund. You might even owe money. I like to take only one exemption. That way I get money in the tax refund. It comes my way and I'm just like, oh, I have money. Yay. Um, it's a surprise money thing and rather than taking it all in. But for some of you, might you need that, that two exemptions because you're like living paycheck to paycheck. So that's a part of that just to know. B is plan for any irregularities. This is one of the things that got me really early going um, in my career. I don't get paid in the summer, which was fine, but I also don't get paid in December, which always tripped me up. I would plan my entire year as if I got paid, and I'd come to December, and on top of having Christmas gifts to pay for, I just had no money, and I would always go into debt at the end of the year, and I like, could never remember to figure this out. So now I actually amortize that money over the course of nine months rather than just eight months. So I only get paid eight months, but I do it over nine months, and that really helps so that I'm putting aside some. Some of your jobs just have irregularities. You're doing an hourly job. There's going to be times during the, the year where you're not going to be working. You've got to plan for that in your budget. Otherwise, that's when crisis situations happen and you get into credit card debt because you didn't work for a couple weeks, you have no income, and uh, you, you haven't planned for it. Uh, a lot of times with, with salary jobs, that's not as important, um, but uh, you know because you don't have to worry too, too much about that. So retirement stuff. This is exactly what you want to talk about, I know. So types of retirement. There is the 401k, which many of you who work for a private business will have access to. And these are called annuities, meaning that they simply are conservative ways of investment, and they're on the real strongly conservative side of things, meaning you're not investing in too many risky um, endeavors, okay? Uh, And it's a 401k, and it's a matching thing that your company puts a little bit in, and you put a little bit in. 
And you don't have just a ton of control over 401ks, but you're gonna have to look more into that because I've never had one, so I don't know much about 401ks. I know much more about 403Bs, which are kind of the private, which is the second one there, um, or it's kind of educational or governmental annuity plans, okay? They're very similar to 401ks, it's just a government version of that private business plan. Both of these are annuities and they're really conservative, meaning you might earn three to 5% interest over a decade period, which is really not a ton, it's not bad, but you're not earning a ton. These are slow growth, meant for the long-term type retirement accounts, okay? Now there's all kinds of different options within that. Sometimes you can let more of your paycheck go to that. And I would say that anytime a company matches dollar for dollar your retirement income, it's worth doing it. You're just getting free money. They are literally matching what you put into it. So maximize that. Most annuities and retirement plans have a certain maximum. Like, for instance, the next two are traditional IRA, which is an individual retirement account, and a Roth IRA. Now, the only difference between those two are, number one, they're a little less conservative. So their returns can go anywhere between 4 and 7%. Do you know what I mean when I say return or yields? That's how much money your money is making over a certain period of time, just sitting there. A Roth IRA, R-O-T-H, yeah, and then the traditional IRA. And the only difference between the two is based on taxes. One's tax is sort of pre-tax, prepay, the other one's after tax. And then there's also some weird rules with withdrawals and things like that, which I'll talk about in a moment. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, guys, because I think when you're really young, you definitely want to invest in retirements and stuff. But I would say, generally speaking, and I know maybe some of you disagree with this, you don't really want to start worrying too much about retirement until all of your student debts yeah. are paid off. Because your student debts are going to be anywhere from 4 to 7%, and you're not going to get that kind of yield on a retirement account, mostly. So unless you're actually doing day trading uh, or mutual funds, which <laughs> most of you probably have no idea what you're, what you're to do with that, you shouldn't probably be putting money into retirement when you could be paying off your student debt. All right? Um, there's this weird kind of thing going around. People say, well, you know, start as early as you can, which is great, but it's much better to start after you've paid off a lot of your student debt, okay? Just matching interest rates, simply because the interest rates on your student loans are usually going to be higher than what you're going to yield you know, on a retirement account. Does that make sense? Anybody have really differing thoughts on that? No, yeah, no, okay, maybe not. All right. Okay. So you got the 401k, 403b, traditional IRA, Roth IRA, mutual funds, and then trading. Uh, so you can think about this as the annuities at the first, 401k, 403b are really conservative. And then you move towards trading, which is very risky. Mutual funds are pretty risky too, some of them. Now, some of your IRAs are going to be using mutual funds, which is just a collection of funds, which I won't try to explain to you, but a collection of stocks. You can do mid-level ones, you can do risky companies, you can do old companies, you, know, you can do um, the Dow companies. There's a lot of different ways of thinking about this. But when you're young, it is kind of the time to be a little bit riskier in your uh, retirement uh, account. For those of you who like this kind of stuff, which is like 1% of you, trading it can be really fun. Um, particularly if you do day trading stuff, um, you can get a lot of money in the short run. You can also lose a lot of money in the short run. And so... Having both a 401k or a 403b and an IRA can be really helpful for you once you've paid off all your student debt, all right? Because trying to mix up your portfolio and having some risky stuff and having some sort of mid-level stuff and even having some uh, you know, really uh, conservative stuff is great. But as you get older, you want more and more conservative stuff. 
that will make sure to give you a specific yield. The only idea with risky and conservative is just if it's risky, you have no idea what the yield could be. So IRAs go from like one-fourth of a percent yield over the last 30 years up to like 10% yield. So sometimes you're making a ton of money, and then the housing market crashes, and no one's making any money, okay? And they lose everything they got. So these are investments in the ways of thinking about investments, yeah? All right, I've already gone too far. All right, I'm going to be done. Sorry, yes. Basics of retirement. Taxable amount, right? You want to know how much of this retirement is going to be taxed when you put it away, and also if you were to take it out. Now, most retirement stuff you don't ever want to take out. Even if you're doing, guys, like some of you are TRS for Alphabest or things like that, it's really not a great idea to take that out. When you lose a job at like Alphabest or you move, you're going to get an opportunity to take a big chunk of money out. But you're going to lose like 40% by taking that money out. And I know $1,000 looks like a lot of money, you know? But if you were to take that $1,500 and actually roll it over into a, in a retirement account, it's going to be a much better deal for you in the long run than taking a 40% hit on that uh, that retirement money from TRS. For those of you who work with kids and things like that. I think TRS is still the system they use, but I don't remember. They do? Okay. So, taxable amount. Limits. Uh, I don't remember what the most recent limits are in the last year. I think it's 5,500. But you have certain limits yearly that you can put that are tax-sheltered in your IRAs. Um, and so, again, it's just great to put that in because then you don't have to pay any taxes on it. It's a way of decreasing your tax responsibility. And so your um, adjusted gross income, your AGI, for those of you who've done taxes, goes down and that money goes into um, the, uh, the mutual fund. Okay? Or I mean the, the retirement account, sorry. Uh, withdrawals, which is really not something you should think about with retirement. <laughs> you don't really ever want to think about withdrawals, but some of these policies have uh, penalties for withdrawing before like 65 and some of those and I think maybe this is not important for you guys to know. Um, Chelsea's looking at me like, I didn't even know that yet, and I've been working for three years. So. No, I just think it's like a lot. Okay, whatever. And then I've already talked about employer contributions, which is the last part of that. All right? Uh, and then I, I put C, start as early as you can, uh, but with a caveat there, what does can mean? Can means that, that generally your credit card debt, especially, and the vast majority of your student debt, particularly any debt that's over about 4 or 5%, is paid off in its entirety. And we'll get into that in just a moment. Okay? So, start as early as you can, but can means, uh, you know, student debt and credit card debt paid off. Car debt's not, not as big of a deal, so long as you've got a 1% or 2%, 3% interest rate on a car loan, if you have. But the biggest thing when you're thinking about paying off stuff, guys, and credit is thinking about the interest rate. That is really the kind of make or break. Because you know, so long as you don't have a variable rate loan where it's changing, the, the rate is going to tell you how much you're losing or gaining. Okay? Interest rates. Yeah? Ooh. Yeah. That stuff gets me geared up, man. Uh, okay. <laughs> Vacation days. Uh, I don't need to talk most about this, but you know, when you're getting a job, particularly a professional job, there's vacation days and there's sick leave days. Those are your two options there. Uh, sometimes they're overlapping. You can like use sick leave for vacation. Sometimes they're they're supposed to be kept you know strict uh, separation. And so different jobs have different amounts of time. But generally speaking, I think, and I don't, I could be wrong about this. I don't get the benefit of these. Um, usually have like one week right vacation, one week sick leave, and I don't know how much of that overlaps or whatever. Then you've got paid versus unpaid time off in some jobs. Again, if you're salaried, maybe not so much. Um, rollover. 
versus use them or lose them, right? Some of the, the vacation days are like, you use them this year or it's over. And if you, you know, save up like a month, which would be crazy, you wouldn't be able to take that off like December, most companies. They have like a certain amount that you, you know, can take off at one time. And then some companies will roll them over the next year, you know, but you don't know. You've got to kind of determine that, whether they're roll over or use them or lose them, right? And then there are earned days or a wait period in a lot of jobs. So you have to work for a certain amount of time before you can even possibly get these days off, right? So this is why if you accept the job and you know for sure you're going to be gone a certain time, you need to mention that then. Because a lot of times, technically, that's got to be a special exception they make for you. Because you have to earn those days off a lot of time, working there for a certain amount of time, uh, you know, or a sort of certain wait period. Almost like if you get health insurance, you know, you got to wait to be able to do procedures or and something. If you take those days off and quit before you technically earned all of them, you can owe the money company. What? Oh, the company. Money yeah. For taking yeah, that's always fun. Off. So just no. Okay. So health insurance, basics of health insurance. Now, I know a lot of you are Obama babies, so um, you get to wait till you're like 26 to, you know, have, uh, get off your parents' insurance. Lame, okay? No, good for you, okay? Um, but I'm still going to go through these because they're helpful for when you do turn 26 or when you have to choose a policy on your own, that kind of thing. Okay, so basics of health insurance. Number one is the type, okay, type of insurance. Um... There's sort of three main types, all right? And I don't think you need to write this down necessarily as much as you just know them. You've got PPOs, EPOs, which are new, and HMOs, okay? HMOs generally mean that you have to see a, a, a general physician before you can go see a specialist. Uh, PPOs usually mean you can go straight to whoever you want to go to. And then EPOs mean you have to really pay attention to who's in your network because there's no money for out-of-network providers, Okay, that's your second blank there is in-network versus out-of-network. What that basically means is they've got a list of people who are approved, and that, those are the people in your network. Chelsea just found out she gets blood uh, work for free. I probably do too, but I, I made the mistake of going with someone who's out-of-network, so I paid $200 for my blood work, which it was, the bill was $1,200, but um, I, this was a mistake on my part because I wasn't paying attention, and you know, Chelsea was smarter, so she got hers for free. Um, so that's just one of the things. I should have gotten it for free. Had I just switched the lab to another lab, I would have gotten it for free. But because it was an out-of-network provider versus an in-network provider, I got messed up because I have an EPO. So PPO, EPO, HMO. <laughs> oh, that was fun to say quickly. Um, and again, that just has to do with, you know, well, that's just all I'm going to say for now. Then you've got limits, right? And these are the amount that you will pay in a particular time period, usually in a year, okay? Sort of total out-of-pocket cost kind of thing, all right? And, um, yeah, then you've got a premium, which is just your monthly payment that you're paying for the policy. A lot of you guys qualify, for those of you who have to have insurance on your own, will qualify for some type of assistance uh, if you're not making much money, and that assistance can be really, really helpful to you, Okay? So I've got uh, someone in the focus ministry has the same plan I do, and he pays $35, and I pay $390, or $360. So I'm mad at him. Um, but whatever. Okay, so your premium is how much you pay monthly for the insurance you have. And the way that this is generally broken up in the marketplace now are like silver plans, gold plans, and bronze plans, gold being the best, which is a, what's called a 90-10 coinsurance. And coinsurance is the next blank. That coinsurance basically just simply means... 
Um, I, I'm working with the insurance company to pay for this. So if it's a gold plan, I pay 10, they pay 90, right? If it's a, if a, a silver plan, uh, I pay uh, 20, they pay 80. If it's a bronze plan, I think it's 70, 30. Okay, I think that's right. Um, so that's just coinsurance, all right? And that's for a, uh, almost every procedure. Now, the next blank there is deductible, and that just basically means this is like car insurance. You have to pay a certain amount before they start paying. So if you have what's called a high deductible plan, otherwise called an emergency plan or a hazard plan, you might end up paying a couple thousand dollars before the insurance even kicks in. And that's a risk if, uh, if you're an injury-prone per- person. Okay? Uh, generally, the, the plans that are the, the gold plans are going to have a lower deductible. So my deductible is like $500. So I pay only $500, and then after that, the, comp- the uh, insurance starts, my co-insurance kicks in. So after $500... It's 90-10. They pay 90%, I pay 10%. Now, all the while, you can still have a possibilities for what's called co-pays, okay, which is the next one. And that is like if I go to a doctor, a specialist, and see them, and the doctor appointment was $300, I don't have to pay $300, I pay a copay, which is just a fraction of that. $30, $50, $70, it's all spelled out in the actual plan itself. copay can come into effect even before you pay your deductible? Yeah, that's what it is. It's, okay. it's a before deductible copay. Now, some people, some plans, it's you have to, you don't only get copays after the deductible, or it's usually coinsurance after the deductible. But copays work alongside the deductible. That way, your deductible isn't necessarily met if you're just going for a quick appointment. Okay, drug copays are the same way. You need medicine, you don't have to pay the full amount. You can have a drug copay and pay a fraction of that amount. All right? Yeah? Some of you are like, oh gosh, I'm so glad I can wait till 26 to not have to worry about this. <laughs> um, and then emergencies is the next thing. There's all kinds of uh, fund structures, fund structures now for emergency care, urgent care versus actual emergency room care. I can never really remember. Do you remember which one's the worst? Is the worst one the urgent care or the hospital urgent care? Rank them real quick. Okay, so if you're sick and you have just a cold or something, do not go to the ER or to a standalone ER. You can go to an urgent care, which is still going to be expensive. If you can wait, go to your primary care. Okay. That's going to be the cheapest. But if you need something immediately, but it's not an emergency, do not go to the emergency room because you're going to pay a ton of money for something that they're probably going to say it's a virus. So don't go to the emergency room, but and there's, there's standalone emergency rooms that look like they're urgent care but they're not they're standalone emergency rooms and you're going to get paid they can charge whatever they want they have no it's crazy restrictions on what they can charge and so you'll pay a thousand dollars to go in for them to tell you that you have a cold so don't go to those a lot of those plans like my plan's 500 for emergency room so and then co-insurance after that so they'll cap it still but it, it's a lot of money now just as a really quick secret if you have a major medical emergency, go to Denton Regional. Don't go to Presbyterian. Because Texas Presbyterian charges a lot more than Denton Regional does, generally in their emergency room, for particularly things like CAT scans and MRIs. And hospitals can charge whatever they want. Dallas is one of the worst areas in the United States for the, the difference in terms of cost of care. We're like the third or fourth worst city in the U.S., which means that you have to be in charge of knowing how much hospitals charge for stuff. And being in charge of your own health care, unfortunately. A lot of people go into crazy debt because they made poor health care decisions. You want to know, you want to be informed, and I know it's, it sounds scary, but it, you, know, you just gotta, you got to be informed about this stuff. you got to ask why people are doing certain things, and you have a lot more control. 
a lot of times we think that doctors are sort of like, you know, in charge of everything. They have to get your approval for things, okay? You're in charge of your own body uh, for the most part, okay? So, you know, you know, know that stuff uh, ahead of time. And then I put the last one there is claim or claims. Claims are great because they're like anything else. You can negotiate them down a lot. Um, now, that's not to say go and be reckless, but negotiating healthcare claims is fun stuff, okay? Uh, and by fun, I mean most of you would hate it, uh, but you can get, knock off 60 80% of your bill just by talking to people about stuff. It's really pretty great. Um, but claims. Claims are things you, you, know, you make on your health care, health insurance. Your health insurance says, well, we're going to pay a certain percentage of that, um, and you can negotiate a lot of those ranges within that, now that I've overwhelmed you. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I feel you saying things. I know it's a lot, but, you know, it's stuff I didn't get to talk about with the financial seminar. Yeah. Yeah. What health care they have in control. And we're here for you guys so that you don't have to go, oh my gosh, there's no way I'll ever read all this stuff to make this decision. So realize that we're here to help you guys out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, and that's a big deal. I mean, you know, you guys have largely, like, as a uh, demographic, don't talk about health care. You don't want to talk about it. It's scary. Yeah. <laughs> The, the uh, healthcare marketplace staff has done all kinds of stuff to try to reach out to young people about health insurance because it has become so complex and so difficult. So don't worry. If you're getting the feeling inside, that sick stomach feeling where you're like, oh, this is bad, that's a good sign that this is complicated and complex and you've got some years to figure it out. Yes. For those of us who are getting close to 26, <laughs> so, so there's like an open enrollment period, right? Yes. But what if you, so the open enrollment period is in August, my birthday is in March. Right. So do I have to enroll? You can enroll in January. I can't? I'm Mm -hmm. allowed to do that? Yep. Okay. Because you have an extenuating circumstance. Oh. Okay. Uh, Same thing if you lose a job or whatever else. All kinds of cool circumstances can allow you to have enrollment period times. Okay. uh, B, deciding what to get. Cost and use. So this is the, the idea that, you know, uh, I used to do disaster plans all the time because I never went to the hospital. I would, like, break toes, and I still wouldn't go to the hospital, okay? I just don't go. Now, insurance is so expensive, even the disaster plans, that I just go ahead and get a good plan. I have a great plan now. Um, but I pay a lot of money for it, okay, as I told you earlier. So sometimes you just have to kind of think through cost and use. You know, what do I really use? If you're, like, a sickly person, it's probably a pretty good idea to have a copay policy. Uh, if you're an injury-prone person, pretty good to have a pretty good insurance policy. So you're not paying $6,000 for a broken arm or something, uh, which that's actually pretty cheap, it sounds like, for a broken arm. Uh, things to consider, current providers. You know, if you've got people who you really like as doctors or dentists, you want to try to get a plan that includes them. And sometimes that's going to be hard. Uh, but there are plenty of good providers out there. I've just now switched over a lot of my providers to the Denton area, and we've got some great folks in this area. Um, one particular uh, person that a lot of us have gone to is a lady named Mary Krause, who uh, Emily introduced us to. She's a uh, nurse practitioner, and she's, she can be your primary care physician. And she's over uh, on Bonnie Bray, and oh, she is so great. I love her. Uh, C-R-O-U-S-E. Oh, she's so great. What? If she's in your network, Yeah, right. She's got to be in your network. Uh, hopefully she is, because she is the best. Cross your fingers. Mine was fine. Mine, was Mine loved it. Saw it's weird. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, there are non-traditional options too. 
uh, disaster plans, supplemental insurance, minister networks, deciding to not have any insurance at all, which is still an option for you if insurance is too expensive. You can just say, I'm not going to have it. I'll pay that giant penalty that's like now up to like $650, which is still less expensive than having an insurance policy. Um, but I would recommend that you get an insurance policy. It's just a good idea. Okay? And if you generally can't afford it, then there's probably a lot of money for you. You can get on uh, a website that will di- you'll kind of estimate how much money extra you would get paid uh, for your health care. Okay? And there's a lot. There's a lot of supplemental uh, payments for you. The other thing can I add one more thing? Yeah. So if you, um, if you have something that's going to cost you so much money, don't be afraid to ask. Because we have, I work in urgent care, and I'm, that we have a nurse triage line, and people will call all the time, and they'll be like, well, I don't really want to come because last time I paid $150 for a prescription. Is, you should never pay that much for a prescription because there's usually almost 99% of the time an alternative that they can say. You know, sometimes your insurance won't cover one specific prescription. Yeah, it's so weird. Just change into one other one, and it would be... $5 as opposed to $150, but there, there's so many different things like that, not just for prescriptions, but co-pays and different things like that. Like you might be going in for a visit thinking you're going in for a physical. I think Chelsea had that happen to her, and then they thought she was coming there for something else, and they charged her a crazy amount at the beginning, and really that should have been covered under her regular yep. care insurance. And I should have known to be like, no, don't, you shouldn't be charging me that, but I was so, I was like, I mean, I, I was so nervous and confused. I was like, look, I mean, okay, and... They charged me a hundred dollars, and I'm like, I mean, maybe I did something wrong. Fine, and then they had to come back, and thankfully they were honest, and they were like, "Oh, we're so sorry. This is guys. Crazy. A lot of them don't even know how to work this system. We yeah, it there's a reason why. Like, oh, I guess it's a hundred and charged me. There's a reason why we're ranked really low in around the world in our healthcare system when it comes to payment and options. It is it's just messy. So I know a lot of you don't have to worry about this. Just be glad you don't. Um, whatever your political you know, views are aside, just be glad that you uh, get to wait until you're 26. Um, okay. Uh, also, it, obviously, Emily, if you want to just go to her house at any time or any hour to get anything checked out, um, she is completely okay with that. Whatever you've got, you know, wherever on your body. Yeah. Take a picture. Text it to her. Ask her what this looks like. She is. Yeah. That immediate diagnosis for free. Uh, so it's an ongoing joke that, you know, like whenever people have a car problem, they call me. Whenever people have like a body problem, you know. They immediately text or call Emily, so that's good. Um, I would much rather work on cars. So, uh, Okay, understanding credit and debt. Uh, this is one of the things I had to fly through last time. It looks like I'm going to fly through it again here, which is great. Uh, basics of credit. So you've got the principle of credit, which is just the amount that you're borrowing. You've got that wonderful interest rate, which, guys, I, I gave you the example last time. I pay my interest rate on my car is, like, less than 2%. I'm very proud of that, okay? That's what good credit will do for you. Thank you. I basically pay nothing to borrow money. I have a good friend of mine who has a very similar truck uh, that I have, and he pays 17% interest on his tra- truck, which he pays more in interest than I paid for the original principal balance on my truck. Please. Uh, Learn that interest rate matters and matters greatly, okay? Uh, this is why it's often not a great idea to get a car loan from a dealership is because a lot of times they have variable interest rates and they'll go up and down with your interest rate. You, always, you pretty much always want a fixed rate. You want it to stay, okay? That's not always bad uh, to go through a dealership, but you definitely want to price interest rates on pretty much everything. Uh, they, they're very, very variable, okay? And then you look at the total interest, a lot of car dealerships, if you've ever been to a car dealership, what's the first thing they want you to do? They want you to think in terms of what? 
Monthly payments. Monthly payments don't mean anything. You need to know the total amount of interest you are paying over the course of this loan. Just because you can afford something monthly now doesn't mean that you can afford it monthly later on or that you want to afford it now in terms of interest. Some interest rates are just far too high, okay? Um, you have the loan type, which we've, we've kind of already talked about, right? That's just the idea of variable or fixed. Uh, the loan term, how long you're going to you know, take a, a car loan out. Generally, three or four years is the best for a car loan. If you're doing five or six years for a car loan, you might be getting a car that's too expensive. Uh, or not making enough money to you know, provide towards it. Because that's a lot of interest accruing, five or six years. I mean, shoot. Three or four years is a much better car loan, uh, loan term. Okay? Um, and then penalties. Yeah, whatever. Let's talk about student loans, because that, that's a big deal. And I want to focus a lot on that. All right? Student loan types, okay, and compound interest. Um, I'm not going to try to explain compound interest. If you go back to our financial seminar, we've put links to all kinds of funny little videos about compound interest. Compound interest is fun. I mean, it's just a great way of people to make a ton of money off of you. Um, so just know that interest, when it's compounded, just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so there's a couple things you need to know about interest. Number one, most interest on a loan gets paid off in those first couple years. Okay? Meaning that you're paying most of your interest in that first couple year period. They want all their money and they want it up front. So it's much better to not get a loan that you can't afford than to tell yourself, well, I'm going to get this loan and then I'm going to pay it off in three or four years early. Well, three or four years early on a loan isn't that helpful. What's helpful is not getting a loan that big in the first place because most of that interest they're going to get from you in those first couple years, not later on. That's how interest works. It get, they get it at the beginning, right? Almost half, let's say you have a loan for a car for six years. In the first year and a half, half of all your interest is already paid in that first year and a half. That's crazy. So it's not spread out over time. That's how compound interest and interest payments work. All right? Um, so student loan types. All right? So a lot of you have probably direct subsidized and unsubsidized loans. Probably you should know what that is. Subsidized just means while you're in school and for the six-month period after you graduate, the government is paying the interest on that loan. Yeah? Unsubsidized means you started accruing interest the day you took that money out. Okay? That's why paying off unsubsidized loans while you're in school is, can be helpful. That way you're not accruing interest. Um, Some of we just don't have the option for that. And then you've got all kinds of other loans. Parent plus loans. Pretty much any loan that's not a direct loan is going to have an origination fee of 6 to 8%. Which means it's, it's something you're going to pay up front. You cannot get back. That's why direct loans are generally much better... Uh, loans than the uh, non-direct loans, meaning you, know, you get them directly from the government. They don't come from other sources. All right. Um, okay. In terms of uh, you know paying off your loans. Okay. So C is figure out what type of loan you have and plan to get. Uh, it's not okay to be ignorant of your loan type. You need to know what you got. Okay. Uh, this is what I do a lot of counseling with for folks in our church, is they got no idea. And so I sit down and look at all their loans. They don't even know their interest rates. And so they're just kind of paying things off haphazardly when they get out of college. You don't want to do that because you can save yourself a ton of money uh, in this area if you'll just spend a tiny bit of work thinking about your loan. All right? So I, Chelsea and I had $63,000 worth of debt when um, we, a little bit before we got married. It was a ton of debt. I mean, but no, that's three degrees for me and one for her. And my total interest payments were going to be $21,000 and a half. So that's $84,500 to pay off. 
Chelsea and I will, by the end of this year, almost have our, our student debt paid off completely, and we will have paid about $3,000 in debt compared to $21,000. That's like a full car, okay? So, clapping? Okay, no. But... Good. Do your due diligence in your loans and you will pay off a lot of money. And that means living frugally for a couple years once you have enough money to not live frugally. And that's fine. That, there's a lot of fun in that, being able to kind of ease your way into having money and not just going crazy. So when it comes to paying off loans, there's a couple different options here. Uh, that's the D, repayment options. You have income-driven repayment, Okay. Which basically means that if you don't have enough money, you're not making a certain amount of money, they will lower your payments, okay? But they will also extend the life of the loan beyond 10 years. Almost every student loan has a 10-year loan term on it. So if you file for an income-driven repayment because you can't pay the, let's say, $300 a month payment, they will lower those payments based on how much money you make. However... They have now extended the life of your loan, which means in terms of compound interest, you are going to be paying a lot of times twice or three times as much interest. So an income-driven payment is not necessarily a great route to go. You should maximize the amount you can pay on a student loan. It's as simple as that. You should maximize how much money you're paying off your student loan. So you could file for an income-driven repayment plan if you just really want to. And it, you know, some people in our church are paying like $30 a month on $40,000 worth of loans. <laughs> That's not going to be a very good idea long term because they're going to be paying back probably $60,000 in interest payments on a $40,000 loan. That's like a house payment. Please don't do that. So income-driven repayments are okay if you absolutely don't have enough money to pay for your student loan monthly. But otherwise, you should just keep a standard repayment plan which is a 10-year repayment plan, okay? And there are all kinds of calculators out there, guys, for loan repayment. You, you don't just take like 15,000 and then if you have a 6% interest, multiply 15,000 by 6% because it's compound interest. It's constantly rising. So you have an effective interest rate. Uh, so you go and put that into a loan calculator and you'll be able to figure out how much interest you're paying over time. And that way you'll know, um, you know exactly what's at stake here, how much money you're going to be paying uh, over the course of that time. So uh, that's uh, income-driven repayment plans. Then there's loan forgiveness. Now loan forgiveness is a tricky thing because basically what loan forgiveness says is after you make 125, 120 qualifying payments, whether they're continuous or not, they will delete the remainder of your loan amount. You have to be working in a nonprofit or governmental industry to get loan forgiveness. And it has to be you and not your spouse. Okay? Is it not? Not your spouse. Yeah. It has to be a governmental or a non-profit organization. With few exceptions. You can get a loan forgiveness. Uh, now, if you combine income-driven payments and loan forgiveness, that's when things can get pretty, pretty fun. If you're paying $30 a month on a loan and you are also in a loan forgiveness plan, well then shoot, you can pay $30 a month for 10 years as long as you keep that job for 10 years and have paid a fraction of your loan amount off. But either one without the other <laughs> isn't necessarily that great of a deal. So for instance, loan forgiveness for me doesn't really matter because my loan's mostly paid off and I don't qualify for the income-driven repayment plan. Income-driven repayment plan without loan forgiveness, you're going to be paying that loan for 30 years and owe four times as much interest as you started off with. So if you have no idea what's happening here, um, that's okay. Just look it up on the FAFSA website. 
Uh, so yeah, makes sense. So loan forgiveness and income-driven repayment plans. The best thing to do, in my mind, is to just do a standard payment over 10 years and try to pay off your loan in two or three years. That is the best solution in my mind. Particularly if you're one of these folks that has an interest rate that's around 58 or 6.8%. If you were lucky enough to get an interest rate that was only around 3%, you know, you can, you can last 10 years on that. That's not going to be the end of the world. But when you're up around 5 or 6% for interest, you're, you're, you're talking about paying a lot of money. Uh, yeah? Have I lost all of you? Yeah? No. From day one, from the moment I spoke, I lost you. Okay. Um, I'm not going to talk about E. You guys know this. Use credit cards cautiously and build credit early on. You know, just just uh, yeah, start with a credit card. A real cheap five or $600 credit card. A lot of you are like terrified of credit cards. I don't know where you got that idea. I mean, credit cards are tricky and scary. But as long as you just get like a $500 limit credit card and pay it off every month, you can start building some great credit for yourself. Uh, because credit is, is important. Credit is like your identity, your financial identity. And if you have nothing... Yeah, I think uh, getting a credit card is great. Me, what I did my senior year of college, I got a credit card and I only used it for gas and groceries because that was a consistent amount that I budgeted for every month. And so at the end of every month, not the end of my statement, the end of every month, I just paid off that credit card bill. So I never accrued any debt. I kind of thought of it like a debit card. I didn't pay for anything with my credit card if I didn't have that money in my checking account so I could pay it at the end of the month. That way I was able to accrue credit because mm-hmm. prior to having that, I couldn't get a car loan because I, I had no bad credit i had no good credit either so i just treated it almost like a debit card in that sense and paid it every month credit is so important because it's the difference between you having a one percent interest uh uh, rate on a car and an 18 percent interest rate i mean the really sad and unfortunate thing about interest rates is often those people who are really smart financially early on it's almost like the gre now that's a bad comparison uh, well, yeah, I'll tell you. The GRE, for those of you who ever take the graduate entrance exam, the first couple questions you answer, chart your course for the next couple answers. So if you answer wrong, you get into like a dumb course. Um, same thing with credit. If you, you first couple years of credit, you do a bad job, man, you're like in the dumb route for financial. And it takes a while. Much It's like an insult, right? Remember how an insult, one insult takes like seven compliments to like get rid of or some crap like that? Um, bad credit takes a lot of good credit to get out of, okay? What, that's not a real Is thing? Is like a measurement? I think that's a good thing. You're like seven compliments, you're like, I don't feel so bad anymore. <laughs> okay, whatever. Karen, you have a question. Um, do you ask you, when it comes to credit cards and uh, no, you just pay off every month. So, so you pay your statement okay. the entire amount every month. You don't want to pay the minimum payment. And actually, it's better if you pay more. If you have a, a kind of an, a balance, it's always better that you pay more if your credit card will allow you to do that so that you have a constant advance or, or credit. My card cards let me do that. Um, and so that's just uh, just good to do. Someone told me that, like, can't pay it all off because then it looks like you're just doing it to try and build credit. They yeah. don't want that. No, no, they do. The, the two major things, guys, when it comes to credit, two major things. One is they want to see that you're not maximizing all of your credit. Yeah. So if I've got a $10,000 credit card, and it gets crazy when you get good credit. They give you all kinds of credit cards. I have a credit card right now that is 0% interest for 27 months, Okay, which means <laughs> effectively I'm putting my motorcycles on that credit card which is maybe not the most best thing to teach you how to do, um, and paying no interest. I'm having no interest vehicle loans on my credit cards, which is really great. Um, I don't even have to go to a dealership. 
But that's only for if you build good credit and you can you know, not have to pay interest on stuff. It's really fun. So that two things. Don't maximize how much money. And two, that you're never late on payments. That's it. They just want to make sure they're getting their money and you're not maximizing the full amount. So don't go spend $500 on your credit card if you have a $500 limit. Spend $250 to $300 to $400 a month and pay it off every month during the statement. Those are the two big things. And you can always look at your credit report, right? On these three, these three places that I gave you. You do it one time a year per credit card reporting agency. So stagger it every quarter or so. Look at these and make sure your credit report is accurate. There's no problems, no issues. They don't have your name mixed up with someone else's name, whatever else like that. I have two things. One, if you're like me and you're impulsive and scared of credit cards because Dave Ramsey has put the fear in you, then, um, then get an accountability partner. That works for finances too. You can, if you really want one, I want to be able to cut it. Also, if you have questions, save them and text them at the end. Yes. That's why we have that. Okay. Now I'm guilty. But. Okay. So, um... Definitely, the, the, you've got the repayment plan uh, for the, the loans, and you're welcome to talk to me about any of these. These are great. Try to uh, get an idea of what your uh, on your loans. I'm going to go back to this real quick. You have the option of paying off minimum payments on loans, but then you want to pay off the loans with the highest interest rate first, right? Those are the ones that you want to pay off. It's as simple as that. If you've got even a $1,000 loan that's got a 7%, 6.8% interest rate, pay that off first. It's the one accruing the most interest. You can do that. You can pay minimum payments on all your loans, but what you're going to do if you have a, a, a loan servicing company, they're going to lump all of them together and give you one easy payment. You don't want that because they're just going to do all of them equally. You want to pay the highest interest rate uh, loan first. You've got to pay the minimum on all the others, but you want to have any extra money towards those one with the higher interest rates. Okay? Well, something that my nailnet does is that whenever I pay, it like splits up into all of my loans. Yes, but it's not... It's, what it's not doing, it's doing the minimum payment for all of them and adding that number together. You, you really want to be paying more than you're required to pay, and all the money more needs to go to the higher interest loans. Because your nail net's not going to do that. If you pay $200 more than your loan is worth, it's going to spread that evenly over all the loans. It doesn't have an automatic thing that pays it to the highest interest rate. So You've got to do that manually. You can flip down on the screen, and it'll pull all the loans up, and it'll give you the amount in each loan. So you could do minimum on all of them, and then the one with the highest interest rate, add in all the extra money you're going to pay for that loan. And I do big chunks because it just is easier for me to remember two or three month big chunks, which are great. But if you just got a little extra money, it's better to do this, guys. Once you have savings, it's better to do this than to contribute to IRAs and things like that. And the only exception to that is if you have a company 401k and they're contributing matching funds to you, that's even better than paying a student loan interest up because that's just free money, all right? But it's not better to put your IRA uh, money in, um, uh, in your IRA versus a student loan because the interest rates aren't going to match up. Okay, F, uh, that one, car loans, power of your credit score. I've already talked about that. Almost everything is negotiable. Guys, the key to negotiating stuff is really one simple rule. Just walk away. There is no more powerful rule for negotiating and not being an overspender than just walking away. If you can't walk away from something, you should not be paying for it. Okay? You've got... What are you looking at? Yeah, I'll give you an example. Walking away. No, no, no. Stop. Yeah, you walked away with the deal. Then I came back. Oh, yeah. That's my dad buying his truck that was way too overpriced. Um, walk away. That's all you got to do. Everything negotiable, walk away. You just walk away, spend some time thinking about it. If you have even a second guess about buying it, just don't buy it. 
You've got time. It's probably going to be cheaper later. Okay? And I think that's the number one rule. Uh, good versus bad debt. You have all kinds of people who think and talk about this, guys. This is going to be the last thing that I talk about. Uh, some people say any debt is bad. That's the Dave Ramsey philosophy. I don't believe in that. I don't think car debt is bad. I don't think house debt is bad. I think if you're smart about it, it's, it's worth it. You know, if, if the interest rates are so low that I'm going to make more money on an IRA than I would in paying my car off, of course I'm going to do it. If I have a 2% interest rate on my car, but my IRA is yielding 4%, then it's much better idea to just go ahead and put money towards my IRA and get a car loan. It just makes sense. It's just comparing interest rates. It's really pretty simple stuff. I don't think loans are bad. People often want to pay off the small loans first to give them some kind of advantage, and I think Dave Ramsey kind of likes that. I think that's silly. Don't pay off the small loans first. Pay off the loans that have the highest interest rate, even if they're $400,000 and you can only pay $500 towards it. Pay off the higher interest rates. You will save more money in the long run. Okay. Um, that's my soapbox, you know. Dealing with bad credit. If you got bad credit, come talk to me. We'll figure it out. We'll work, we'll work uh, some out. You don't have to go and pay someone to do that. We can figure that out in other practical steps. All right. Uh, just for the record, I know mine was really long, but I used exactly what I did. So if you don't know me, I'm Grant, and I'm going to be talking about your work environment and choosing where to work. That's section five on the handout after Ryan's. Um, so I wanted to start by just like recapping quickly what my post-college work experience has consisted of. Uh, I worked at a place called Navigation Solutions in Plano for the summer after I graduated for like three months, and uh, that was like they make like GPS navigation devices for cars, um, and that was like a, a couple hundred people. And then I uh, did that internship with Focus for 10 months, and at the time, Focus employed like 20 people. Then I was unemployed for six months after that, uh, and that was no employees. And then I finally broke down and got a job at a Walmart warehouse for uh, six months, and that was 2.2 million employees, And then, which is crazy. That's bonkers. I was like looking that up, and that's uh, 1% of Americans are employed, of working Americans are employed by Walmart. I just thought that was crazy. And then I quit that job to work for a technology marketing startup, and I was there for eight months. Um, and then I recently transitioned to another job with like a technology company that makes stuff for education. I've been there for two months now. Um, so there's a, three employees at the last one and 20 employees at this one. Um, so I share that one to say that I've had a mixture of like big and small companies in different work environments. And also, I wanted to share, um, I think probably the biggest mistake I made in like graduating from college and looking for a job was that I was too selective. And uh, I don't think I did a good job of like, being objective with myself about how ready I was to get into the field that I was trying to get into. Um, and I talked to a guy, and he was like, yeah, if I were going to hire someone in this position, I would need to see a lot more of these things. And then I started like, trying to get that experience and work on those skills. Um, and I should have broken down and like, gotten a job outside my field a lot sooner than I did, I think. I was uh, being selective about being in the Denton area and about being in my field. Um, and it's taken me a long time to finally find something that is that way. So I just wanted to share that. Uh, so the first thing is small versus big. I'm just going to kind of share sort of, I really like practice this, so I don't know what's going to happen. But um, so yeah, there's like small companies and big companies. Um, one advantage to, well, it's not necessarily an advantage, but one thing about being in a small company is that it will make you more of a generalist. Um, 
whereas if you're at a big company, you would have like a really specific cookie cutter function to serve because it's all like scaled up and specialized. But when it's small, um, you like get pulled around to different tasks, and you can kind of become a more well-rounded person uh, in terms of your skill sets. Um, there's more small companies in Denton in terms of like stuff that you're trying to make a career out of. You know, I think of like Peterbilt or Sally Beauty. Those are both like headquartered in Denton. Um, but that's probably not stuff that a lot of us are trying to get into. So, if you're going to be like trying to work in Denton and do something like career-wise, you may be playing the small business game. Um, one kind of one thing about small businesses, I guess, it's sort of a con is that uh, sometimes things can get kind of like sloppy or not really done by the book. Um, at one of my jobs, I was asking like when I can start, uh, when I should have my dad cancel the health insurance that I'm on and so that I can start the new one. Um, so I was asking, like, when the new, has this one taken effect yet? When is it going to take effect? Um, and his response in the email was, uh, you should be good. <laughs> I was like, that's not nearly reassuring enough for me to, like, get my health insurance canceled. <laughs> so I had to like follow up with that again. Um, another random thing about small businesses is that uh, taking initiative is huge. Um, that's like something that Focus emphasizes a lot in choosing leaders, and that's really important in, in a small business, in any business, but especially small. Because um, there's just lots of things that aren't defined yet for the company and lots of things that aren't done yet. Um, so just looking at those things and taking initiative to fill those needs is big. Um, one thing about a small business is that, uh, like in, in my current job, there's no, like, no tracking or accountability for my hours. They just kind of, everyone at my company was like involved in founding the company and they all have a lot of like ownership in it. And so, um, they don't need to have like a lot of policies in place to make sure that people are doing what they're supposed to be doing because they're all invested in it. And that's just kind of the environment. So it's easy, uh, for me as like a fairly entry level person in the company, one of the few to take advantage of that kind of casualness and lack of rigidity, I guess. Um, so I have to be sharp about like making sure I am putting in my hours and I am like doing good work when I'm there. It's kind of more self-managed. Um, uh, big companies tend to have a lot of policies, um, and a lot of times they're designed to kind of make things simple and just like alleviate conflict. Like when I was at Walmart, there were lots of things where you know, if two people are applying for a position, it's just whoever's been there longer. Like, we're not going to think about it, just whoever's been there longer gets it. Even if they're, like, a terrible employee. That's just the policy. <laughs> um, and that's just, you know, if they didn't have policies like that, then people would be objecting and complaining, and it would create all these issues they'd have to deal with. So they just decided it's just going to be a black and white. And I think that's, I think that's fairly typical of big companies. Um, one advantage to a big business is that um, you feel less responsibility to the company. Like when I quit Walmart to start working for a startup, I like tried to ask my manager if he wanted me to work my last weekend or if I could just move on. And uh, I didn't get a hold of him until like 40 hours, uh, 40 minutes before the shift started. And I was like, hey, so I got this job. Do you want me to come in this weekend? And he was like, no, you're good. Just go on. And I was like, all right. So then I didn't go into work that weekend, started a new job. Um, whereas if it was a small company, you know, that would be like a huge percentage of their labor, like leaving. And, you know, you know the people better and you feel more connected and responsible. Um, another advantage to a big company is that you have more opportunities to meet more people and opportunities to move around within the company, like between departments or areas. Um, so, yeah, that's all I have on small versus big. And then uh, re remote versus local. 
uh, what I had in mind with the local is like there's a physical place that you go to, and remote would be like you're just working from your computer. Um, with a remote job, uh, you don't. You, if you're like working from home, you might find that you don't like that. That's what I found is that it kind of drove me crazy to like sleep in my room and get up and work in my room all day and then go back to sleep in my room and just like spend my life in my room. So I ended up, you know, like going to coffee shops and stuff, which is almost like paying for like renting office space because you spend so much money. Um, so yeah, you might find that you don't like working from home if you try that. It's always, I feel like all I've ever heard is people talking about how much they wish they had that and how great it is. And then I was like, I don't like this at all. And so I wanted to share that. Um, if you're working uh, remotely, there's a really good article. I guess maybe this is whatever. There's a really good article from a company called Zapier. It's like the the ultimate guide to like working remotely or managing a remote, a remote company. And it talked about uh, like traits that are important for someone who is working remotely. Um, propensity toward action. Um, I guess I'm not going to try to like explain each of these. They're somewhat self-explanatory. Ability to, to prioritize tasks. Good at written communication because a lot of when you're working remotely is like you know email or messaging kind of stuff. And you're not in person. Um, okay, without a social workplace, and you have other other areas for social activity. Um, self-managed and self-discipline. Oh yeah, and if you're working for a remote company, um, if you're working remotely for a company, uh, they have to place a lot of trust in you because they don't see they don't see you, they don't see what you're doing, and they really are just kind of in a position where they have to take your word for like how you're spending your time. Mm-hmm. You know, they can measure whether you're getting your tasks done, but um, they're just pretty blind and they just kind of have to trust you. Um, and you can make that easier for them by like, you know, communicating a lot about what you're doing and why you chose to do that. Um, so yeah, that's some stuff about working remotely. Uh, working locally, it's easier to communicate and plan. Like it's great at my work because I can just like, step into my boss's office and bring my computer in there and point at the screen instead of having to like, take a screenshot and circle this part of it or whatever. It's great to like be in person. I really like it. Um, if you're working in an office, uh, be punctual. Like Just be there when you're supposed to be there. Uh, don't show up late. Don't leave early. Another cool thing about working locally is that you can build friendships and ties into the community. I was just talking to Ryan the other night and... Like, I saw this guy at Shift who Josh knows because he's in a band. And that guy also knows the people that I work for because they all work together at a previous company. And he knows Ryan because of his company. And there's just, like, a close-knit network. And I was like, dang, I'm, like, kind of involved in this network now. So that was cool. Um, yeah. So that's all I got on remote versus local. I want to talk a little bit about uh, impacting or affecting the work environment. Um, so, like, once you're there... What kind of a change can you make? Uh, the first thought I had there is just that humor can make a really great positive difference. Yeah. Um, so just keep your eyes peeled to recognize things that you can laugh about together. Mm-hmm. You can definitely do that too much to the point that it comes off like you're just there to clown around. So you know, don't take it too far. But um, it really is just like a great thing. Like I was sitting... <laughs> I thought this was really funny. I don't know if y'all will. But last Friday I was sitting in my office with my coworker Brandon, and we were just kind of, we'd been there for a couple hours working, and then he uh, said something, and I took my headphones out, and I was like, sorry, what? And he was like, my shirt's inside out. <laughs> and it was a polo with, like, buttons and a collar. <laughs> we'd been in the office for hours, and neither of us noticed that his shirt was inside out. But I was like, man, that's awesome, and I'm going to laugh at that. 
Um, uh, take responsibility for the big picture. Uh, be open to doing tasks that are outside of your regular responsibilities and offer input in other areas and ask for input from other areas. Um, one of Ronnie's and Focus's things is uh, move your feet and talk to each other. Um, especially across like different departments or teams, there can be a lot of like duplicated effort or things that just aren't getting done and a lot of this stupid, unnecessary waste. And just communicating with people can help to eliminate some of that. Um, say that's like looking at the, the whole of what the company is doing and taking ownership of it and you know, voicing any concerns or questions you have. Uh, one thing JVR, one of his soapboxes, uh, sorry, John Von Runnen, he's in the Wiley Church. Um, he runs a small business, and one thing that he has been telling lots of people, including me a couple of years ago, was uh, just give a little bit more than you have to. Like, as an employer, something that, he's not, that he doesn't love is when all his employees work exactly 40.00 hours a week and they're just like doing the very minimum they can get by with. Um, so just give a little more than you have to in terms of like the quality of your work when you're there and how much work you put in. Uh, that means a lot to employers. Um, it's, this is probably like, I don't know, it's easy to default into an attitude where you're just thinking like, what's the least that I can put in and get by? And I found that to be like the most reliable way to make myself miserable when I'm at work is to be thinking about doing the minimum particularly at like a monotonous or boring job because there's like not a whole lot to like fill your thoughts with. <laughs> so then you're just thinking about, you know, trying to do as little as possible and that makes it a lot worse. Um, it's just bad for the company and it's bad for you and everyone that you're working with. And it's infectious. It can kind of like rub off on other people. Um, so instead I would say ask, what's the best contribution I could make today? Because then whenever things end up being a lot more difficult and involved than you thought, then that's just like, oh, wow, there's a problem here that I can solve, and maybe we can like, prevent this from happening in the future. Um, so yeah, don't think about the minimum you can do, but think about um, what's the best contribution you can make. And that's all I had. So Melissa and I are going to talk um, about some of the more, or I guess less practical aspects of this, uh, uh, talking about preparing for the 40-hour work week, balancing work and rest, and then a few ideas about learning to love your vocation. Um, I'm Chelsea. I'm a social worker. I work for a dropout prevention agency, so I work in high schools with students who are at risk of dropping out. And I provide services and plan events that will help them and their families um, be more successful in their education and in their post-high school experience. So that's what I do. I've been doing that for three years. You already know what I do. I already told you. So what's already told you? Um, do you want to start? start? Yeah. So one thing that um, I really noticed about switching from a college schedule to um, a grown-up schedule, as I like to call it, a 40-hour work week, is um, that it takes time to, to adjust. And in any transition, there's going to be stress and on your body. Whether or not that's a really, really negative form of stress to you or not, your body will be experiencing stress as you transition into a different schedule and a different lifestyle. So don't freak out if, if you're not super happy or if it's kind of hard at first. Um, because I think it affects people in different ways, and it could be really challenging for you, or it could be 
super easy. And one thing that Brandon Warsham said to me was that a lot of times when people switch into the 40-hour work week, it takes about six months to a year of them being really, really tired, and then they start to like it. For me, it was about um, three months of me being really, really tired and having nightmares every night because that's what happens when I have stress like about work or friends or just random stuff. And then I really started to get into my schedule, but I am allowed to go into work a little bit later than some other people, so that could be why mine was less stressful. But So just don't freak out if it's not super fun at first you'll get used to it. It's a transition. So have some expectations for that. Yeah. And I think to just be prepared to, um, hand, to have more responsibility than you may have ever had in your life. I think one of the big adjustments for me was going from college where if I did really poorly on a test or a paper, it only affected me. I got a bad grade. Maybe it affects my semester grade. Maybe it affects my GPA. Great. That's still, I'm the only person facing those consequences. And when you get to work at a job, particularly, I think, well, I, I mean, I work in a job where I'm working with a lot of other people. My decisions and my judgment uh, affects other people really seriously. And that was a big adjustment for me. And I'm still having to learn how to find peace in that and joy in that and be okay and trust God with that. Like, that's a big adjustment as well. And I think this is a good time in your life to learn how to be content. And I remember uh, this past, I get two weeks off for winter break. And I was like, the day, a few days before going back to work, I was kind of like, okay, I guess like, I'm okay going back to work. And I remember telling Melissa that I really thought feeling content would, would feel a lot better than this. I thought I'd be like, woo, like, I'm going back to work. But I was kind of like, oh, I guess I don't hate that I'm going to wake up tomorrow and go to work. I mean, that's kind of my life. Like, it sounds sort of depressing, but I, that felt, that was a really neat change for me when previously I was like, oh, I don't want to go back, you know. It just is different. And you get to learn a lot about God and you get to learn a lot about yourself. You're going to be in a more isolated part of your life than you ever have been before just because you're not doing life with as many people as you maybe have you know I worked with my roommates I lived with my roommates obviously I did focus with my roommates and I had classes with some of my roommates Mm -hmm. I was never alone in my life and (laughs) now it's like okay I do a lot of things that nobody else in my life does and so you have a chance to learn about a lot about yourself um so that's kind of our opening statement Wait, wait, I want to say one more thing. I'd say contentment is the number one lesson that every single person I've talked to that's making this adjustment has learned. Whether they're married or not married, they have a full-time job, or if they're looking for jobs no matter what, the number one lesson that people are learning as they're graduating is contentment. Mm -hmm. So go ahead and uh, get started on that now. (laughs) So our first point in preparing for the 40-hour work week is adjust your expectations. Um... We kind of broke this down into three main areas, your relationship expectations, your ministry expectations, and in your schedule. Um, For relationships, your time with people is really going to change. This is especially difficult if you may be the first in your friend group, your close friend group, to graduate from college and move into working in um, full time. That's a big, big adjustment into what your time with your close friends will look like. And that's okay that it changes, uh, but your stress level may be up here and you're having to watch your best friends wake up at 10 a.m. and go to class every day and their stress <laughs> level is down here and you want to scream. Like it is, it can be a <laughs> tough adjustment. And even if, you know, you may not be aware that like, oh, these five other people are also transitioning. They're also experiencing the stress that you may not notice that you may feel alone in that. And so you're, you have to reach out more in your relationships. Um, and it takes a lot more planning, which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I was going to add to that is 
all my friends are far away now, pretty much, except for, mm-hmm. you know, there's like five adults in Denton, so there's that. But <laughs> um, one thing that I found is really, really useful is planning weekly phone calls. And it's not what you got in college, and you don't get to spend seven days a week with these people, but weekly phone calls have kept up my friendships with more people than hanging out with it. Like, I, I don't see people ever, but weekly phone calls have become really, really meaningful and exciting. Also, you're probably not going to want to hang out with your friends past 1030. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just, you just don't want to. You're exhausted. It doesn't even sound fun. And you might feel boring and guilty about that, but mm-hmm. don't. You have to be an adult. So Yeah, I think I, one thing I want to make a practical piece of advice is really consider who you're going to be living with your first year out of college and what, what are they going to be doing. I think that, because that really... I was the only one of my roommates to be working full-time and everybody else was still in college and that very strongly affected me and my like happiness. It was really difficult. So just not to you know completely avoid college students. Sometimes you just have to. It's what works out. But, but keep that in mind when you're planning your living situation post-graduation. So talking about ministry, um, adjusting your ideas about where you can do ministry. Um, when I graduated and left Focus, I, you know, in Focus, I was doing like, eight to 10 one-on-ones a week. I had maybe five foges going on. I was at a leader meeting. I had core. I mean, my life was full of very obvious ministry opportunities. And then I started working full-time and I'm lucky if I get two one-on-one meetings in a week. I mean, that's a good week for me. And I'm doing one foge right now and it's literally taking us three years to do it because we meet like once a month. I mean, it's just so different. And I felt really guilty about that. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm failing. I'm failing at being a minister and being a a full-time worker. I'm not balancing it well. And in doing that, I was ignoring the fact that these 40 hours of my week was just another type of ministry that wasn't cutting into my opportunities to do ministry. It was providing a new opportunity for ministry that looked different than what I'd ever done. Um, And that again, we'll touch on that again later, talking and learning to love your vocation. But I had to change my perspective and understand that um, ministry is going to become like a hundred times less structured than it's ever been for you. And that's okay. That's kind of more fun. It's a little less boring. Not that ministry focus is boring, but I kind of like never know what conversation I'm going to have in a week. And that can be positive too. Yeah. The number one thing that helped me adjust my expectations was talking to people who had been through it. Mm -hmm. So Chelsea and Leslie were my like number one people that helped me get through this like, oh, I was in college ministry and I did the internship, and now what am I doing with my life? I'm playing with chemicals. You know? yeah. And so <laughs> they really, really helped me to see some of that. So definitely have people who have gone through the transition to minister to you. And then once you've gone through that transition, minister to other people that are going through it because it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, our next point is talking about schedules. Um, I, I, I have the tendency still to see, like I look at my week, I kind of maybe on a Sunday will look ahead of my week, and I'm like, okay, so... I don't even think about my time that I'm going to be at work. I think about my free time is from 4.30 to whenever I go to bed, and that's when I get to like live my life and do what I want. And I just don't even consider, oh, between like 8 and 4, that's still my life. Like That's still my time to be relational and to be godly and to learn things. Like That's still a valuable part of my life, and they can be purposeful and enjoyable. Um, I also learned that it's really important to develop hobbies a lot of college students don't have any hobbies or interests. I don't mean to like hate on you guys. I was kind of the same way, but it's kind of like, what do you do? Like, I don't know. I do ministry and I go to class and I go to work. Like that was it. And so I've learned to develop hobbies, have good books that I'm reading or podcasts I'm listening to or hobbies I'm trying to do, or like go to the dog park and talk to people at the dog park and do things to where 
I have like weekly updates with a coworker. What are you reading? I have a coworker who's a beekeeper. So we talk about her bees. <laughs> like, and that's her hobby. And that gives her something to talk about. Like you can be way more interesting to people if you have things that you're interested in. Kelsey Marble, one of my favorite people, has this quote that interested is interesting. If you're interested in people, you're more interesting. Yeah. And if you're interested in other things, you're more interesting. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a practical tip. Yeah. Something I feel really passionate about in your schedule is finding a balance between being active and um, doing what you love and then overfilling your time. So I really want to be busy. I love being busy all through the Focus internship. That was, I was always, always really busy. And I really (laughs) kind of learned that you have to say no sometimes. And I think that becomes even more important when you are working a 40-hour work week. I love being with my friends and spending time with them. But if I do that every night, I am miserable. Like that is a hard week and I didn't get things done and I get stressed. And that was not my life before that I used to always hang out with people every single night, and you just sometimes you can't do that when you're in the 40-hour work week, and that's okay. Um, Another thing is you really have to plan in time to, like, do your laundry because you're not just going to have a random three hours in the middle of the day anymore to do your laundry. So I've set, like, for me, what works for me is I plan Sundays to do that. So I do my laundry. I clean my whole bathroom, the kitchen. That's, like, my day to do the dishes. And I prep my meals for the week. I do that all on Sunday because if you don't think about planning that time in, no time presents itself the way it did in college. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can't just, like, come home in the middle of the noon. No one's home. I can cook. You have to plan for that. So... Um, And then also doing your budget. You've got to make time to do that as well. And finding time, again, in your schedule to be with God one-on-one. And that it's really, really hard in college because you're always ministering to people. But it's really, really hard in adult life because you get up at the crack of dawn and you go to work and you're at work all day and you come home and you're tired. And you have to really be purposeful in finding time for God in that. That's a struggle that I have. And having accountability partners really help with that. Um, And then also... uh, Go to bed on time. (laughs) That is a huge thing. Go to bed on time. Go to bed on time. If you don't sleep, you're going to be miserable. It's going to be really hard. Sleeping is like the number one thing that I preach besides the gospel. I just think it's so important. It's so important. (laughs) I tell all my friends at work that they need to sleep more and they ignore me and then they're all grouchy. So um, sleeping is really important and finding a routine. You just kind of have to grow up. You can't stay out until one o'clock in the morning anymore and think you're going to be able to function well at work. Because if you're not doing a good job because you stayed out late, people will notice. It's not like in classes where you can stay out and then you miss a day of class and you can catch up. No, if you're not doing a good job at work, people notice, and you're not being a good employee. You're not being a good steward of your work. So you need to learn to sleep. Uh, next, our next blank is become an initiator, um, and particularly you have to become an initiator and in getting your to make sure your relational needs are met. Um, I know that focus teaches you to become an initiator in terms of ministry, but if you live with your best friends, you don't have to initiate a lot of time with the people that you love. That's built into your life. They share a room with you. You have dinner together. You hang out together. You don't have to work very hard to make sure a lot of your needs are met. And I don't, this, I don't know, maybe this isn't really a dude thing, but I think it probably is deep down. But, um, (laughs) I struggled with this a lot, particularly moving out of, you know, being married and and moving away from my roommates. And obviously not all of you are going to be experiencing that right away, but your time really changes. You're not going to have a peer team leader checking in on you. You're not going to have a COFA to meet with. You're not going to have a team of co-ministers that you see every other week. 
And I don't mean to be like, it sucks, because it doesn't suck. Like, But you have to really initiate getting those needs met and getting time with people. I have a group of my, my closest friends, well, some of my closest friends, and we're all spread out. And I see them maybe once a month, yeah. maybe. And that time is so special to me now. And I kind of will block out a whole Saturday, and I don't have, we don't go do anything. I just like go to their apartment and spend an entire day with him. And Brad's like, how do you spend that much time with your friends? He doesn't understand it. But I'm like, this is, it's, it becomes so meaningful because it's planned. We put it in our calendar. We know that it's happening. We're excited weeks in advance to literally sit in an apartment and do nothing. But it, it's so meaningful. And I never felt like my time with my roommates was that meaningful because it was just kind of easy and there. So in initiating more, you do get to um, have a little more meaningful time with people. Um, our next part is balancing work and rest. That's the second section. That first blank is setting boundaries. Um, I, this is, I'm kind of going to contradict some of what Grant said. I don't believe in going above and beyond 40 hours a week at all, ever. I don't get paid overtime. I'm a social worker. I will die if I do that. So I don't bring work home. I don't check work email. I don't answer work phone calls once 4.30 hits. I don't exist to my coworkers or my students that's a boundary for me. I had to set that early on, even when I didn't feel that stressed and on weeks where I'm like, I could do 50 hours and be fine. No, I don't do it. I set a boundary and I don't bring that stuff home. Um, and then prioritizing, this is the next, will you turn that so I can keep up with it? Oh yeah, sorry. Prioritizing your time and your tasks. This goes, Melissa touched on this. I'm not going to elaborate very much, but prioritizing what has to get done this week. Where does my time need to go this week? And, um, what's going to help me feel, um, most at rest and how can I prioritize restful things? So yeah, so the next thing you need to do I think is develop restful habits. This That's is the blank. Restful, yeah. This is something I learned a lot about also during my internship. I thought I knew what was restful to me, which was coming home, laying down and watching TV. But you'd be surprised to find that it's actually really not. You need to actually learn what's restful to you. And that could be kind of a forward idea. So some questions that I ask myself are what makes you feel rejuvenated? What do you love to do? What's really important to you? And what things help you leave work behind and help you feel like you have a life outside of work? If you go to work, you come down, or come home, you t- sit down, watch TV, go to sleep, wake up, go to work, come home, watch TV. That's all, all you're going to feel like you do is work and sleep. I promise. Yeah. Um, for me, some of the things that I found is like cooking. Actually, weirdly, cleaning makes me feel really rejuvenated. Um, being with friends, you know, going to small group, having time with God, those are all things that I found to be really rejuvenating mm-hmm. that I didn't even know I liked until last year. Yeah, so, I would also add exercising and mm-hmm. then having like consistent time with people. Leslie and I meet every other Wednesday night. That's part of our schedule. It's built in, and that's really restful for me because it's a routine, and I don't feel like right. it's last minute added on, taking away energy, like, once that you kind of build those things into your routine as restful activities for you, it, it just helps you feel a little more in control of what's going on. Right. Um, learning to love your vocation. That first blank is fundamental beliefs about work. Uh, believing that God is at work everywhere. Your job is ministry. You are not in a separate category as the people who do the focus internship or the people who are on staff with focus ministry or anybody who is on staff at a church. They're not any more a disciple or minister than you are. And that's a fundamental belief about work that I've had to 
just tell myself you have a responsibility as a disciple, no matter what field you are in to view your vocation as a ministry. And it's not true that you have to do ministry or work in a faith-based organization or particularly work in a very relational job. It's easy for me to see my job as ministry because I get to be with people every day that need something from me. Some people that work in an office all day and don't talk to anybody, it may feel like they're just kind of left out of this like vocational ministry your workplace is a ministry place, you know, but that's not true. You don't have to be in a relational job to still see your vocation as ministry and godly. Um, you don't have to do anything special to make your career count as ministry. I think that's a, that's a fundamental thing you have to start believing about vocation. Yeah. And, um, Brad talked a lot about this earlier, but I wanted to give you guys some examples of parts of your job that aren't relational that I really still think are good and beneficial to building up the community. So there's a guy that I work with. His job is to prep for labs. So he makes all the setup for the students. Usually it's like pouring syrup into bottles and stuff because they're not really chemistry majors. It's pretty lame stuff. And he sets it up and he has to come in between every lab all day, all week, and make sure every two hours that everything is filled. And he, this semester, did a phenomenal job. And at one point I asked him and he said, well, I really believe that if everything is set up, then the students can do what they need to do and learn more effectively. He ministered to those students, and he never even related with yeah. them at all. Another thing is, you know, part of what I do when I just am synthesizing chemicals and I'm not supposed to talk to people, um, as sometimes I do, but I shouldn't, <laughs> um, is I'm helping to develop some a material that will take solar energy and put it that to good use in our world rather than, you know, wasting fossil fuels. And, you know, so I'm helping to take care of God's earth with the work I do alone in a chemistry lab. And so there really are parts of your job that aren't relational, that are building up the kingdom, even if it doesn't feel like it. Um, we did an activity in our small group about what's your, like, statement. I already talked about that today. Oh, sorry. He, that was his whole sermon. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I've just been, I spend one day a week at my job just doing paperwork and reports, because if I don't do that, we don't get grant money, and students don't get services. And so I've learned to see, like, that paperwork day is as valuable as any time I spend with a student face-to-face, because that's what makes our agency run. Uh, next point, building relationships with coworkers. Okay, so my first point about this is that loving and serving your coworkers is not always going to be easy and you might not be good at it. And that came as kind of a surprise to me because I'm a people person, but I'm with these people eight hours a day, six days a week sometimes. That's a lot. That's more than I see my roommates. That's probably more than married people see their spouses. I mean, it's a ton, okay? And it's hard to always be on your absolute best behavior. You get annoyed at them. You, like, see the worst in them. But you also see the best in them, so don't just think it's bad. But sometimes it's hard, and you can't really feel guilty and rag on yourself if you fall short and you get snippy. One of the most powerful things that I learned is that is apologizing. So mm-hmm. if I am short with my coworker, if I do something wrong, if I get frustrated, I will try to circle back around and apologize to them. As, as soon as I realize that I was a jerk, I try to do that mm-hmm. and I've calmed down. So I think that that's really big. And I think that I had this idea of going into my workplace and I had to quickly establish myself as a Christian so that everybody would see everything I did and see it as me being a good Christian. You know, I thought like, okay, they have to, I have to get that out there so that they know, oh, she's being honest and a good worker because she's a Christian. 
And that's not true. I think that being just real and genuine and sometimes vulnerable with people and opening up about things to where they can trust you and open up about their own life. And you can have really good conversations from that approach. I have one coworker who's not a Christian at all, but she knows that I am. And we've had great conversations about her interactions with people of faith. And she's come to me for my opinion about it because she knows I'm a disciple, but she also knows I'm her friend and I'm not going to make her feel crappy about anything that she thinks or feels. And that I think is way more important than her knowing I'm a Christian, to be honest. And that's taken me years to develop, but really making a choice to say, Hey, um, I heard this is going on. My mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. I just want to know we can talk about whatever's happening or like my, this is going on in my family. So you know, if you need to talk to me about it, I'd I'd love to hear how you're feeling about this thing that's happened to you. And sometimes taking that first step. And I'm at a place now where my coworkers are some of my favorite people. I've talked to them about things going on in my life before I've talked to some of my best friends because there's just a, you develop a relationship there. And that's as important seeing your coworkers as people to develop relationships with is as important as as it is when you had a core, you got to invest in those core people. You have roommates, you're going to invest in your roommates. You have coworkers, you need to invest in your coworkers. And it's awesome. It gives you a chance to be friends with people who are in a totally different place of life than you. They have kids, they live far away. They've been in the workplace for 30 years. Sometimes that's awesome. That's so the kingdom, the kingdom Mm -hmm. is diverse and you get to see a piece of that at your workplace. Um, and then, uh, my last point about that is don't ever feel like you have to have all the answers. You are not the like Christian representative that has to perfectly represent Christianity to your coworkers. That's not real. Be genuine. Be like, dude, I don't know. That sucks. That's a really good question. I never thought about it. Like be okay. Not having any answers. If any conversation about faith comes up and understand that conversations that seem to have nothing to do with Jesus or faith can be just as important as ones that seem to have a lot to do with Jesus and faith. Does that make sense? Sometimes the little things are what people will really remember about you. And our last point that we just really wanted to end with is, it's the last blank. Um, your vocation is a part of your life. It's not separate from it. From it. It's not, I kind of said this earlier, but it's not a separate 40 hours that you have to go to this place. It is your life. It is part of your life. It's a chance for you to do all the things that you try to do outside of work. You're trying to be more like Jesus. You're trying to learn about God. You're trying to love people. You're trying to be a good steward of your job and be a good worker. That all happens in those 40 hours a week. You're not, you're not missing out on anything by moving into full-time work. In fact, you're gaining a lot of new opportunities that you've never really had before. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. I feel like we're rushing to finish it. Well, one thing I want to say before we just, uh, before we finish up and wrap up completely is that as scary and hard as this transition can be, being a grown-up is kind of fun. I mean, when you like get a good job, you probably have more money than you've ever had before. Mm-hmm. In some ways, you have more time once you learn how to manage your schedule because you're not so committed the way you are with focus, and you, that that's why you have time to develop hobbies. And I don't know, I, being an adult is fun. It's not this terrible thing. It's an enjoyable next phase in life, and I want you guys to go into it excited, but knowing there are some challenges. So. Yeah, but you have people who have like kind of gone before you. And will guide you. Yeah. So, so get be wise and get advice. Okay. Okay. Last page. So, I'm going to talk to you just for a couple of minutes about the whole idea of your job community versus your church community. Kind of how that goes together. How do you make the decision? This is driving me crazy. You go. 
Okay, this is like... Let's try that. How do you make the decision if and when you should move for a job or for your church community? Um, And so we're just going to talk about that for a minute. Um, The first blank that you have there, your job does not determine what church community you are involved in. The church community you are involved in determines your job. And that's just, I had a really hard time phrasing that in a way that made sense, and I'm not sure I really liked the way it came out, but that's just the idea of priority. Your church community is your first priority, and too many people let their job determine everything else about their life, and that's just not the priority that God gives us. So things to consider when you're deciding whether or not to move for a job. For those of you that are not staying in Denton when you graduate and you're going elsewhere to be a part of another um, community or church family, ideally, it's best to live and work in the community that's closest to your church family. That's the ideal situation. It gives you more time to spend with the church community. You can invite your coworkers and your neighbors to be a part of that community. It's just ideally the best situation. However, Here in Denton, we have found ourselves in somewhat of a unique situation because for some people, it's not possible to do both. And so we've had to make some decisions, and it's gone different ways depending on what um, our goals were. So for some of us, like for Les and Judy and Don and Debbie, they've chosen to drive and be a part of our church community. Um, And that was necessary if we were going to plant a church in the Denton community. We didn't have people that were already living here other than people that were attending school here and a few that had stayed and gotten jobs. But we needed to bring people here, and that was one way that we could do it. Other people have chosen to move and live here in this community but then commute to work. And so Ryan did that when he first moved here. Kurt is still doing that. Um, And again, it's a purpose for the community to do that. Others graduate and want to stay, but they're going to have to commute for jobs, just like Josh is having to do, like Emily does and will continue to do. So here are some questions to consider when helping to help you make that choice. If I have to choose, is it more effective for me to drive to my job or to drive to be part of my church community? Consider things like how involved can I be in my church community? Will I have time to spend developing relationships with people? Will I be able to be involved in people's lives? B, is it more beneficial, that's your blank there, to take a job that pays less but allows me to live in the community where my church family is located? So maybe you would have higher earning potential if you were to go to a job in Dallas but you could live on what you could make at a job that you were offered here in Denton. Would it be best to live closer to your church community and make less salary? And so you want to consider things like time on the road, wear and tear on your car, gas, tolls. All of those things add up, and sometimes when you look at a smaller salary but you include those things in, the salaries are really about the same. They really turn out to be very similar. Um, And then again, if you don't need the extra money and it's more beneficial for you to live closer to your church community, you can be more involved, then it's maybe better just to take less money. C, can I effectively disciple, love, care for my family, is the blank there, 
and others if I commute or if I stay where I am. And so again, just weighing um, the different aspects of being able to be involved in discipling and loving and caring for people. D, are there reasons God might want me involved in another church community? All right, so just like for us, we kind of went against what normally, generally is the best thing to do because we felt like God wanted us involved in the Dutton North Church. Um, So maybe God might want you involved in another church community because he wants you to plant a church. Maybe it's that he wants you to give support to a growing church community that needs more people to come in and work and help. And then the last one I put on here is, you might decide your answer to some of these questions is that it would work short term, but not for a lifestyle. Um, So you might decide to do something that's not the necessarily best thing in order short term to achieve some kind of gain for your church community. Um, And so that's a consideration as well. And I don't think I got that one on your sheet. I think I added that one this morning. And then number three, and this kind of goes along a little bit with what Chelsea and Melissa were saying, your life is not compartmentalized into spiritual home and job. Your relationship with God is your life. And so one of my favorite scriptures is out of Deuteronomy 30, 20. And it says this, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. He's not Lord of When I come on Sunday, he's not Lord of what I do on my free time. He's not Lord of everything but my job or my money. He's Lord of everything. He is our life. So we have to consider our jobs from God's point of view. And so these are just a few things about um, being God's person in the workplace. And I'm going to go through them really fast because a few other people have mentioned some of these. A, build friendships and community. You can build community where you choose to work um, if there are people there. You may be in a situation where you're working more by yourself, but if there are people there, you can build friendships and community. B, serve others. Serving others is not limited to church events. Serving others is a lifestyle. It's what we do every day. And at your workplace, you should be looking for ways to serve other people. C, be honest even when others aren't. This is one of the things that I think surprises me the most about Christians in the workplace is I see so many people um, that approach that as God is Lord of every area of my life except my job. And at my job, I can act however I want to. I can be as dishonest as I want to. I can take advantage of other people. I can steal. And it's as if this doesn't even count because it's work. And that's just not the case. And even when there are other people taking advantage or other people that aren't being honest, as a follower of Christ, you should be the one who is being honest and is choosing not to take advantage. The other thing I see a lot is when you're working for a large company, it tends to be okay to take advantage of the company because it's not a person. And you're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. You're not going to find anywhere where God says it's okay to take advantage of anything. E, don't be, oh no, D, do your best work. 
Even if you're in a job you don't like, even if you're in a job you're overqualified for, do your best work. E, don't be a complainer or gossiper. Anybody can be a complainer or gossiper. There is nothing unusual, outstanding, extraordinary about that. It is unusual, outstanding, and extraordinary to find people that don't do that. And it's very easy to get sucked into that. You can build camaraderie around that, especially at your place of employment. That can be your connection to people. Don't let that happen. F, be your coworkers, your boss, your customer's biggest fan. Again, that's something that we do for each other all the time, that we talk about how important it is, but it's also important in our workplace. And then G, be dependable and be on time. It's not okay to just show up whenever you want to. It's not okay to not be there because you wanted to go shopping or stay up late or whatever. You need to be dependable and be on time. So as I'm looking over our packets and taking notes, we've thrown a ton of stuff at you today. And if there's anything in there that you have questions about that you want to talk further about, any of us that presented today are happy to set up time with you and talk through that. Some of these things are really confusing, but they're really important. And part of being an adult is understanding every part of your life. No more is it your parents' job or your roommate's job or whoever has been taking care of you to know those things. It's time for you to know those things. And some of it can be very dependent on the situation. Um, And so um, Brad was talking about taking exemptions on your W-2 form. And so do I put zero exemptions, one exemptions, two exemptions? Well, there are times where I would tell you, you definitely need to put a zero there. But it's a very specific thing. And so getting with somebody that can help you with that if you don't understand it is the best thing that you can do. Understanding your health insurance. Guys, what Brad said about professionals not even understanding that is so true. But you have to understand it. I went to the doctor the other day, and they were sending me to this lab. And she said, we've checked it with your insurance. They cover it. I would not have known that they did not, except Kurt had gone to the doctor two months before me and had come home and said, do you know they switched our labs? We can't do labs at the doctor's office anymore. And so I had to be the one to say, no, my insurance won't cover that. They would have messed that all up, and that would have been on me. I would have had to pay the money. So you have to understand these things for yourself. But that's what community is for. That's what we're here for, is to help you figure out some of those things. So anything you have questions about, be sure you get with us. During this transition time, you're going to learn and grow a lot. And at times, you're going to feel a little bit alone, and you're going to feel like you don't really know what to do and what's going on. This can feel like a scary time, like the end of your fun life, and a little bit lonely, but you're not alone. This is a transition, and things will change. But as we saw when we did the Ecclesiastes study, every season of life is good and has a purpose. And so relax and enjoy this new season of your life. It will be exciting to see what God is going to do in your life during these next few years. And so it's something you can look forward to and not something you have to dread. So what we're going to do is we have... We actually have five minutes of questions. Okay. And then the rest of them we'll try to put on Facebook and answer to them. 
Okay, so we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to do some questions. And one thing I'll tell you before we end that is we have extra lunches. Those sandwiches already have lettuce and tomato on them, so they're not going to last a super long time. So if you want to take one with you, feel free to take one with you when we're done. We're going to have to break down this room very, very quickly because we've got 10 minutes. And so the sound team, particularly if sound, you guys want to start working on it, that'd be great too. Okay, one of the first questions we had uh, were just sort of like um, how to keep a really positive attitude at your uh, workplace. And I, I got... John Friedrich actually helped out with some of this, and I think he, he made a couple really great um, comments that I, I just want to add, tell you really quickly. Um, make your work less about you and more about your team. And I just like that thinking a lot, that mentality of kind of learning how to not be in competition constantly with other people, but really learning how to kind of be a team player. And that's not something that I do very well at all. Of course, in my job, I don't have to be a team player, so it works out really well. Um, but the second thing I can definitely say from, and he just uh, said, help your manager manage you. Um, I kind of like that. Just the idea of really being able to take critiques um, well, being able to um, you know, really learn what pleases your boss, what doesn't, and being able to be a lesson to him. Particularly if you're working for a small business. It's not rare to have someone who owns a small business want to talk this at one of their employees. I've heard this story many times about the business itself and how stressful it can be. So you can just have a huge impact on people um, when you uh, when you show that you're someone safe to kind of talk to. So you want to see some of the questions? Uh, oh, sure. Um, you you have like three minutes. Yeah. If you have any last minute questions, uh, go ahead and throw them up there. Um, we'll try to do some stuff on Facebook if we have a lot. Uh, question: How do you get those insurance benefits with reduced pay? Uh, if your company offers insurance, um, look at the plan before you take it. I work for Amazon FC, and they have a plan with Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is absolutely incredible. There's stuff that I wouldn't even dream of have ever had, have ever had if I didn't look at the benefits. So if you work for a big company like that, check and see. And a lot of small businesses might offer the same plan. So, but yeah, and you just you just if you do a marketplace one, you just sign up on the marketplace, and they'll tell you, you give them tax information, and they'll tell you what subsidy you get. But that's generally if you're working on a plan by yourself, not. Uh, getting it through the company. Also, last year on my taxes, um, I had to split between between the marketplace and my own and my work plan. And I'll tell you, marketplace taxes is stupid and it's frustrating, especially since I had to pay back half of what I had to deal with because I made more money than I expected. Right. But so just be aware of that. Um, let's see. Do we have to get a credit card that directly from our personal bank? No. Um, you can do you can do a ton of them. Almost every single store has their own personal credit card offered through one of the major credit. Um, a couple good cards right now are the Discover It card. If you can, if your credit will approve of a Discover It card. Discover is not exactly the best brand, um, nor is this American Express, but it is a decent card. Uh, another one is the Chase Freedom card or the yeah. Chase Sapphire. If you can get approved for that. Just be aware of plans that uh, cards that have a really big limit. You, you know, especially if you're starting off, you might have a. You know, they start might get in the spending spree and they can get out a lot more money. Those are two pretty decent ones right now. Chase Freedom, Discover It. Uh, both have rotating categories where you can earn like five percent points back on um, things. And points are. I want to give in the points. Points are like the best thing ever. So um, be careful of like the limit. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, just it's not good to tempt yourself by putting, getting a card with a five or six thousand dollar limit, and then you say, "Oh, I got all this money, and like this is nice." 
more and more each month. <laughs> now, when you get into a sticky situation, guys, when you've got five or six thousand dollars on a credit card, you're gonna spend it uh, a lot of times. So get something with a low limit that you don't have the option to spend more than uh, you know. That, that's the best way to do it. I think. Yeah, go ahead. I have one that's like I think a thousand five hundred, and I only use it during school semesters, and then when I'm home for the summer, I give it to my mom. She puts it in her wallet, and I can't touch it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Those are great plans. There's just a lot you can do on a credit card. Um, you know, in a time uh, that, that are great. Yeah. Are there any downsides to getting credit cards from your bank? No. They just usually don't offer points and they have the they have the worst interest rates. You do want to be careful because some credit cards charge a yearly fee. All right. So you want to stay away from that. That's they don't want any annual fees. There's never a card that you should get until you got some money that you want to pay an annual fee for. Uh, and bank cards just generally don't have that same kind of limits and they don't have the same kind of benefits. And getting a card that's just a card from like Capital One or Chase, they just have better benefits usually. And better introductory offers and things like that. And I think, again, if you guys have any questions and you want to go see, then get with one of us. Yeah. Lots. I'll talk to you all day long about how to use points to travel the world. Uh, okay. Other questions? Um, let's see. It was pretty practical that we could answer simply. Um, if it's cheaper not to have insurance, why should we get it? Because in the long run, it's very bad for you. Let's say like you have a six or seven thousand dollar bill. Well, if you would have paid insurance, you know, over the course of even two or three years, you could limit that bill to a lot less money. A lot of people get into debt. You, you, it's unbelievable how much money. One of my friends had a toe cut off working on another car and he is still paying the 21 and a half it was $21,500 to put that toe back on his foot no insurance and he just had a cheap catastrophe planned he would have been limited at three or four thousand that year but instead uh you know so it just it makes sense to get at least a cat uh, catastrophe plan unless you just don't have enough money I don't think anymore at least used to be when you weren't paying penalties six or seven hundred dollars a year that would have been fine maybe I did that a little bit, but um, now I don't think there's really any excuse not to have health insurance yeah, after Obamacare. Nope. If you have an emergency appendectomy, you're in the hospital overnight, and that is a ginormous bill. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Don't mess around with, with hospital bills. Okay? Any others? I have, I'm going to do one last one. It's a funny one, but it's also, I think, really important, especially with most salary people. Um, goes back to negotiating pay. Do we negotiate with terrorists? <laughs> yes, we do. Who did that um, question? What's wrong with you? Yes, there's some. There's a really interesting concept in uh, economics and games. Are you really about to explain terrorists? No. Oh. Um, it's called informational asymmetry. So basically what it is, is that employers sometimes will um, not tell you what your job is worth on the market because they want to pay you less than that. Yeah, that's so knowing... Glassdoor, I, uh, uh, Ryan put a website. They have market estimates for ranges for your jobs. You are allowed to talk about your pay not only with people who don't work for your company, but also around the industry. So definitely talk to people, know what your job is worth, because statistically, a lot of certain pe groups of people will not get paid the same amount because yeah. they know they can beat you down. Okay, iconic asymmetry. Wait, what is it? Informational asymmetry. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.